just like that. <laughs> We're live. Oh, I didn't even realize we weren't live. Yeah, no, dude. I, I always, uh, I always keep us back in the green room for a little bit. Don't need to surprise anybody. Eric's got the uh, the official CNC mug going. That's right. That looks nice. Yeah. Now, for our viewers, will that be available on uh, on the Teespring store? It is now. Yes. Yeah. So for everybody who's interested in getting a carpets and coffee mug, uh, Teespring, you can find what's it all under NPR network. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot up there. Tons, tons. Yeah. There's tons some cool stuff. stuff. We yeah. definitely have to add more for sure. Yeah. It'll be a, a never ending sort of thing. Like reptiles are mm. just a never ending collection and adding more. Yeah. When will it stop? It will never I, stop. I think I, I, did a, I think I did a bad thing too. Um, uh oh. I might delve into the world of dwarf monitors. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sounds Red like Acme's buying crickets. I know. So here's the here's the the thing that's that might work to my advantage. So my uh, dad is now, you know, he's full blazing, ready to breed his own roaches and crickets and all worms and all this kind of shit. Nice. So it's like, okay. Um, I was like, Hey dad, what if I, you know, supply some of this stuff and then you just breed them and I'll just come by and pick them up. So Perfect. I think uh, that's how it's going to work. So we'll nice, see. Nice, dude. Not a bad idea. Don't have to have them in your house. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I hate crickets. Terrible yeah. creatures. I'm I'm hoping that I like the ackies more than I hate crickets. <laughs> the good thing is ackies are savage little ninja hunters. They let no crickets go. Like they will leave no corner unturned hunting for crickets. Right. So they, as long as like the enclosure secure, they'll snag them. They're they're really good hunters. Um, we've got a couple in the shop. We got a pair, and they're uh, they're just so fun to watch, dude. They're active all day, and they'll burrow around, climb, bass. But if there's movement, little crickets, poof, they're on them. Really? Oh yeah. They're so fun. have you have you worked? do them at the shop but have you worked with them personally or no i've not kept them here but i have definitely like handled some seen care of some cared for some plenty uh at the shop and elsewhere but yeah uh, they're they're another species i would consider getting for sure yeah yeah, yeah. they're pretty pretty amazing dude they are really yeah. with the red ones yeah, yeah the ones i'm getting red yeah i'll have to send you guys a can you send a picture in the chat? No, right? No, I don't. No, it's just chat. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, send it, so. I'll send it in our chat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, they're fun. They uh, they're like little little bulldogs with Energizer Bunny batteries. You just don't ever stop. How big of an enclosure do you need for an adult? For an I mean, you know, you, of course, what I'm going to say right now will probably upset a lot of the folks that write care sheets online and people that walk around and police the Aki monitor keepers. But I would tell you, um, you could keep an adult pair in uh, a very dynamically arranged three foot enclosure. No problem. 
I think right. the trick to that would be adding vertical space, putting a high basking spot, and you know the the idea of a Reeves stack. Yeah. Um, Lucas, are you familiar with the Reeves stack? Not, it's, no. It's, so it's it's named after uh, Reeves is the, the guy's last name, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not as up to up to speed on all the details, but basically it's a stack of layers of ply with little boards. And it basically makes like a pyramid with little slots in there at different thermal gradients up to the, the hottest basking spot where small monitors and lizards can tuck themselves into these hot crevices and regulate appropriately by hitting these very specific tiers of temperature. And with how active active monitors are, they will use all that space. So if you can create some, you know, vertical cliff space with lots of cool crevices and things going up to that basking spot and some hollow logs and just a, you know, bunch of surface area within like a three by two, dude, you'll yeah. have a beautiful arrangement for two Ackies. And the nice thing is, you know, one pair, they, they bond pretty nicely. They're very cordial and you can cohab them like, all the time and they're just great that's sweet awesome. yeah yeah they uh, uh they man eric when's the last time you got bit by a monitor <laughs> 10 years ago <laughs> okay so nothing <laughs> nothing like a snake bite oh yes <laughs> they hold on and they they bite down harder as you try mm -hmm. to pull away right the, the trick if they ever get you Put them down on the ground. Just let go. They'll let go eventually. Oh, really? Just just put them down. Let them go. Great. Get all four of their feet on the ground and, and let them go. Do it in their enclosure so they can take off. But, man, when they bulldog you and they grab you, it's always a knuckle and they, like, twist and wrench. You're like, ooh, ooh, you're impressive. Now let go. <laughs> I, I think um, I think I heard that the red reds are a little more uh, – nippy than the yellows but yeah they i don't be, know but it's, i'm getting it's the like, red ones i think it's marginal in the difference i think if you if you learn you know how to handle monitors uh, and you're just you know you don't ever restrain them and you get really good with the walking technique and how to pick them up and how to approach them and you learn your animals i think you can avoid bites pretty pretty readily it's not that bad right yeah yeah yeah. What's that? Savannah monitor. Ah, Savannah. Yeah. 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 Nasty. Nasty. I was like, ah, I need my hands. I can't. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I can't chance exactly. it. That was one of my big things with the vivarium. Is I wouldn't work with the Argus because I still needed to play. <laughs> yeah. Argus or Argus are a little dodgy. The Crocs? No. Yep. Yep. I said no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I learned I really quickly not to uh, wiggle my fingers like this at all in the lace monitor cage at work because the female thinks that's food. <laughs> oh shit! As yeah, said, that looks like food to me. <laughs> yeah, she comes right. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'd like to do like um, I'd like to do some naturalistic setups of like uh, I think I told you guys I want some of those. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Strafura, straf. Strophurus geckos? Yeah. Strophurus. Right? Yeah. Strophurus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's seeing one of them in the wild. And it's like, you you know, you come back and you're like, oh, that would be cool to have. You know, if I was going to have a gecko, that would be the one. And then I'm reading this book and man, I'm hooked. Oh, oh nice. Man. 
Yeah, man. That's a cool book. They did a good job. So, And those are fun geckos, too, man. They're not like any other geckos. They're different than, like, North yeah. American banded geckos. They're different yeah. from leopard geckos. They're different from crested geckos. And then when you see, like, a big, I believe it's the AMA, the really rough knobs, dude, they get huge with no tail, and they're just, like, little English bulldogs with big eyes. They're like, ah! Yeah, it's kind of badass. Uh, They jack themselves up, like yeah, they stand (laughs) up like an alligator high walking with no tail, like (laughs) that'd be cool. That would be fun to set something up for those animals. I think of uh, what was the guest you guys had on um, NPR? um, Who's he's got his YouTube channel? I I subscribe to it, and I apologize, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he does those really nice naturalistic enclosures where even like had the oh, clay really? butt flip. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of that one enclosure you did with the snake coming out of the, like the mud cracks and things. And, oh, like, no, that's um, Matt Somerville. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. So the, I just picture like the mud crack flats with spin effects grass mm-hmm. in a dimly lit, like moonlit sort of enclosure with rock stuff. And then there's your strophurus gecko on the grass blades hunting crickets at night. Yeah, man. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. I caught myself looking at um uh, a post. Fortunately they were sold, but it was from like earlier this month. The guys at Sim Container posted a pair of uh Pagona Henry Loss and I, the um uh the dwarf uh Rankins dragons. There was a pair uh-huh. of them and I was like, ooh, that would be cool. I've got a I've got a 40 gallon front open and I'm like, ooh, I could set that up and <laughs> do some foam rock work here and do something. And I was like, nah, stay focused, Riley. You've already veered off course like five times this year. <laughs> yeah, right. You like colubrids and <laughs> dude, I was looking at it, I was like, okay, I uh I, I bought MIA jungles this year. Right. That wasn't planned, but that's I guess still on course. Um, somehow Doomerel's boas ended up in my lap, corn snakes. Uh, I wasn't planning on expanding the brettles pythons, but here we are. And then, uh, uh, some Mac lots. I'm just like, well, where did I go wrong? Yeah. I, I like to just put it to where it's like, okay, I'm going to focus on Australia stuff that way, except for, um, you know, uh, IJs. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, it's like so i'm sort of like in this little world you know yeah for me it's this never-ending eternal struggle because i see the folks like that i i look up to in their style of keeping and their focus and i want to emulate them and so like the pendulum swings back to that focus and then it goes right back to like veering off course and then comes back and then right back to veering off course and i think it's just me fighting the fact that i love having variety as much yeah. as I envy the folks who can focus. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. I veered off course with the false water cobra stuff, but uh, <laughs> I'm not mad about it. I, my friend was roasting me. She was like, I've been what? seeing a lot more false water cobras than Brettles pythons on your Instagram, buddy. <laughs> uh, once you go big colubrid, man, or colubrid, I'm going to say both just to keep people guessing. Once you go big colubrid, <laughs> It's really hard to uh, to to ever look at things differently, man. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to look back on when that thing was a baby, 
when that thing is like seven feet long, you're gonna trip, dude. Probably need the biggest enclosures that that I will own. <laughs> will be for the falsies. They they will use every inch of it, man. Back in in Santa Barbara at the zoo, the enclosure it wasn't quite big enough for me to stand in. It was probably four and a half feet tall, three feet wide, and you know eight or ten feet long. And it had a big pool in the bottom that they'd use all the time, a rock wall in the back that they'd climb up, a branch that perched all the way across. And you could catch them basking under UV on the on the log because we had UV. You could catch them soaking in the pool. They'd always go to the bathroom in the pool for the most part. But, like, just unbelievably active. And every inch of space you give them, they would use it. And it's, again, like I said, it's one of those species that once you start doing things for it, you start thinking differently and you can never go back. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and certainly a species that it seems like will utilize the UV and I've been observing yes. since I hooked up this cage here with, with some UV. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a different vibe to have a, a diurnal active site based predator mm -hmm. uh, versus like a, a nocturnal ambush predator, completely different. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if that's the only non-Australian thing I have going on, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> just for now. Yeah, time. yeah. It's, I I don't know. It's like the colubrids. Like they 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 pull me in, right? And I, I I I'm like, wow, they're cool. You know, I dig this. I like this. But like, I guess it's like, I think like I have limited time to do stuff. So right. stay focused. You know, yeah. it's like well, stay focused. Yeah. Eric, didn't you mention something about a new room in your house? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> slowly taking over <laughs> well you know i was thinking about uh my diamond pythons right and i'm trying to find so i i have the ap cages as you can sort of see right but i was going to do them naturalistic but the problem is is that they're not tall enough right so <laughs> Because they're not tall enough, I can't get basking. I can't get like you know, uh, like the ledges and stuff like that. So I, I actually, we were talking just a minute ago about Luke, but if you look at his diamond python cages on uh, Beaches Scaly Beasts is his yes. YouTube. Mm -hmm. He has those real tall diamond python cages, mm -hmm. and you can cohab diamonds probably better than. Probably better than other carpets because the males don't combat, if you will. So I'm thinking about like making this big, huge, like right in that wall, like building a like a big, huge, just all the way to the ceiling cage, with big, huge perches in it, and you know, um, ledges to where they can bask and UV lights, and yeah, I think yeah, uh, I think that's that. what I'm going towards. That's awesome. That'd so. Be so cool. See how that turns out. <laughs> yeah, if only, uh, if only I'd been shown the light before I filled up this whole room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with diamond pythons? <laughs> just in general, like just uh, my yeah, keeping yeah. style. Because now, like, I would love to do that for everything, really. Like, yeah. I mean, let's be real. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be breeding, I, I'm, you know, it's either gonna be quality in, in small groups or, you know, doing fun stuff and going big. But I think like you're doing transitioning into that sort of uh, aesthetically pleasing 
but behaviorally tuned in approach to keeping, I think that's, you know, kind of reminiscent of the shift we're seeing in the hobby. And, uh, I think, I think I find a lot of that enjoyable as well. Um, the more I see other people doing it, the more fun it seems, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, I think, I don't know what it is with me, but like currently, um, I have like this, I can't get started with snakes. I don't know what it is. It's in my brain. So I'm like, okay, to kickstart this thing, I'm going to go with the monitors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Do it and then say, okay, now I know I can do it. And then, you know, add yeah. in, I'll start with the diamonds and um, go from there. But uh, yeah. how bad in that terms be? of the enclosures? Like- yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I have all these ideas with designs and this and that. And like, you know, I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm weird that way. It takes me a while to like process the thing before I pull the trigger, you know? That's probably a good trait. (laughs) Do do you have have a space where you could like, for example, set up the the empty monitors enclosure and use it as your workspace as you're like sculpting, scaping and building it all before they come in and you can just like have this thing sort of evolve and have your visual aid as your sort of mentally sort of deciphering how you want to do it and as you go you're learning about the process of what you're building and how like in yeah. a garage or something yeah that's what i sort of started i started uh you know again figuring i'll mess around with this you know it's i don't know it's like a maybe a 40 gallon enclosure whatever it is <clears throat> so i'm going to start with that um see how it goes uh and then sort of jump off of there and then uh because I can't find anything of what I, it's either not long enough. It's not deep enough. It's not tall enough. You know, there's right. always some kind of something and like, I don't know. And then, you know, I guess you could get stuff personally made, but. Yeah. But then you're right. dealing with the word custom. Yeah. 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 I wish I had the tools and like know how to, to build stuff myself. That seems like it would be very helpful for for what we do but yeah i don't have a wood shop <laughs> yeah you, you need you need table saws you need space yeah. yeah yeah the good thing is is like that's when i came up in the hobby that's how you did it there wasn't mm. cages or stuff like that so you had yeah. no choice but to sort of learn those things and i mean you're only making a box can't be right <laughs> yeah really. it doesn't have to be too complicated yeah <laughs> But it's not as easy as you might think, you know. Right. right. <laughs> no, it never is. No. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And right. I may still keep certain things in racks. I think with like selective breeding with IJs and stuff like that. I don't know. It's to keep the, a group that size, and you know, it's going to require some space. Of course. Made and you know, so I figure I have like two main showcase rooms. And then one sort of what I would call breeding baby room type of thing. Yeah. Um, not, yeah, not to like bring it back to that one rant I had, but we all need to <laughs> just pause and accept that racks are a part of the hobby and there's nothing wrong with that. So yes. I think anybody that's trying to progress a project, breeding in a realistic timeline in any sort of way that's more than just a pair of animals, that's where racks come into play. So I don't see anything wrong with anybody you know, ethically agreeing with the benefit to having full spectrum lighting and cages and all this stuff. 
and and having a couple things set up aside but like if they're really trying to breed something and that's their projects why why is that bad to do it in rack so i think that's i think the uh the social stigma against you know one or the other is is bull crap i think that needs to go by the wayside and if you want to have you know display rooms with beautiful like ruffies and diamonds and all these things set up and then still have like the breeding room dude more power to you and anybody who's going to talk smack about it's just like whatever they're just not they haven't caught up yet you know because that's the reality like anybody who wants that affordable carpet python or that affordable false water cobra or that affordable crebo or whatever it is you know it's because somebody's breeding them in racks sorry yes. so that's just the reality of it so mm-hmm. i'm i'm all for it man like i've got some display cages i've got stuff in right. the living room for a few animals just for the heck of it and then you know even in here some animals are in cages some are in racks it's just the way of the world so yeah 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 it's 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 yeah it's it's one of those things i mean now you understand it but at the same time it's sort of it yeah it's sort of that thing you know if you're going to breed on any kind of scale um yeah. Yeah, you have to sort of <laughs> think about that, you know. And, yeah, and that goes back to that other uh, engineering project we were talking about, where someone needs to design a rack that is a cage with yeah <laughs> with all the full spectrum lighting and whatnot, and then sure yeah we can uh, we can highlight them on the show. So, so you know, <laughs> so, so Zoomed makes those T five uh, slim hoods that are like I've measured them; they're like maybe an inch and a half or so. Hmm. And uh, although, you know, COVID related product and chain chokes and supply issues right now, um, I have seen a freedom breeder rack that was made for UC Davis doing some um, garter snake, giant garter snake work in one of their private buildings that uh, it looked like it was set up for, venomous because it had like a, a door for each tub like where the top had like a mesh closing part mm-hmm. and it was space just enough where they had act because they wanted it as part of their requirements for their study to have uh, these animals have access to uh uvb and so they had it in in just you know your drawer style racks but with the venomous mesh sort of top hood and it had just enough room for a t5 strip to fit the whole way so in essence, you could still pull each drawer out without upsetting or, or, you know, disturbing a light. And every single tub had access to UVB. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily feasible for everybody because we're talking freedom breeder, you know, stainless and prices related to all of that. But, right, right. you know, that, that would be really cool if there was some way to make that a mass produced way. Like, you know, if in every single one of these shelves, um you know what if like every rack each shelf was three inches thick instead of just the three quarter inch pvc or whatever and what it did was allowed for a built-in uvb housing that had some sort of you know uh you know like strip that prevents um animals from getting out but it allows the uv to go through not you know it doesn't right you just need a a certain a certain amount of clearance for that yeah yeah and then the other thing, we, we need technology to get on like a much better UVB output because right now what we have, like the best bulbs require replacement out of, you know, yeah. six months to a year and they're not consistent as far as their output. And, 
you know, sometimes they blow and sometimes they're too hot. And like, so it's right, yeah. the technology isn't with the ideas just yet. So there's this disconnect. So until somebody can come up with like, you know, like these cuttable LED light strips like this that you can get, mm-hmm. but it's UVB output and it's just like, zoop, like a little sticker of it. Until somebody <laughs> makes this and that UVB, would be nice. How can we have this? That's yeah. the future. We just got to figure out the process to get there until somebody can reinvent UVB output to come out of tiny little things like this. <laughs> it's it's going to be a battle. So certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Yeah. Well, the coffee's kicked it. <laughs> chop, chop with that. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, I could see I could see some folks working on it. Um, you know, Freedom Breeders making a big change right now. They're adding a second building to their to their property. They're getting rid of the majority, if not all, of their ball pythons. They're going to really just shift all really? their fo- Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been talking about it for a while. They finally announced it publicly, but they're selling off a lot of the ball pythons to focus on the rack production and take it up because they're even they've had to to back order stuff. I mean, you know, so, so there's so much attention and good uh, marketing for them and, and other companies out there right now. And with the demand going through the roof, mm-hmm. you know, financially, it just makes more sense for them to keep putting their the eggs in the in the rack basket instead of snakes because it's that's their bread and butter. So and then rodents, they do a lot of rodents for the state out here, too. So, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, um, why well, try to compete in such a uh, you know, saturated, saturated. type. Mar- mar- <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was trying to think of a different word to use, but yeah, you know, like why try to compete with that? Uh, well, and there's no, there's no guarantee in sales with the snakes too. You know, right? Like you don't have a backlog of snake sales. It's right. not like you've got 50 orders for pies, you know, right. or whatever. You got 50 orders for these three thousand dollar racks, though. Like that's yeah. no brainer. So. Yeah. Um, even if you've got enough animals where you're producing year round, it's still like, that's the, the dividends are different. So I think, um, you know, they're working with, with folks like Garrett Hartle from reach out reptiles to work on arboreal racks that are like glass front, but also a tub tray in the bottom. Garrett's got a prototype there. I think that's a great idea. Again, the stainless aspect of it's going to, you know, have some cost implications on things, but. I think yeah. we're in a progressive time. So I, you know, I saw that, um, that sort of hybrid thing that he has. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen him talk about it on YouTube and stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess at the point when it becomes so tall, like what's the advantage of it being a tub? You know what I mean? Like why not <laughs> yeah. just go cage? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, maybe, I, maybe I'm not seeing the, how that would evolve but but i just like if you're gonna slide the drawer out to 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 change the substrate i don't know most of my snakes would probably be in the drawer so it kind of would you know (laughs) i I don't know or especially if you've got stuff that doesn't clear the lip or like if your snake's perched on something that goes across right right so at that point what would be the difference of just having open doors of a cage you know right yeah, that's a good point. I yeah, guess. I mean, cost maybe depending maybe. on how much a unit like maybe. that 
costs? Yeah, I mean, maybe the the panels uh, on the side are cheaper than doing glass, and it's easier to manufacture than glass. I don't know, glass is pretty cheap, but... um, Well, if it's a pricing thing, then yeah. I mean, if it's going to be substantially cheaper, then okay, I would would see the point, but... You know, I mean, from it, just the the design of it, like I just don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess if I kept all like green trees or something like that, where mm-hmm. they're going to be consistently, you know, or emeralds or something where they're consistently perched, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be easiest. You know, you don't even have to disturb the snake; you just pull the drawer out, change the whatever, and put it back. You know, right? Yeah, I guess. I guess the tray on the bottom concept it reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of like a chameleon tray basin for cleaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. for easy cleaning and it reminds me of uh like with rodents you know keeping mammals on like uh, a false bottom so everything falls through so you can clean out the poop out the bottom but right. then there's no guarantee these animals aren't going to be on the bottom so you have to be strategic about when you clean so yeah i guess it doesn't it doesn't get around that pitfall um but yeah i don't know maybe we're just we, we're still calibrating what the market's asking for because we don't want it to look like a rack, but we want the efficiency of a rack. <laughs> yeah. But if you but if you go buy cages and put it on a baker's rack that looks like ghetto and janky, and like you're not you're yeah. not I'm not professional. Yeah, exactly. It's like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. What do you think all the pros did back in the day? They got neodeshes and put them on a metal rack or built a wooden rack. It's like right. It's all the same thing. It's it's a psychological, like, never-ending game of just running around the bush, pointing fingers and throwing stones at one another. Because essentially, at the end of the day, a rack is just stacking whatever enclosure it is. A cage right. is no different than a tub. It's just right. a different access point and a different material that it's made of. That's literally it. And look, right. I mean, you can put together... Dep- if we're thinking of enclosures in terms of uh, evidence-based keeping and... Mm-hmm. Um, enrichment and, and, you know, welfare, you mm-hmm. can put together a cage that's garbage, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. just like a water bowl and paper, nothing else in there, you know. How and many then, times right? do you see that on Craigslist? Oh, I'll rehoming my ball python. I don't yeah. have time for it. It's a, 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 up- a bowl and nothing. And right. And whereas you can there. also set up a rack very well if you have, plenty of things in there for that particular species right so right you know it, it, it really when it comes down to it like you just said a box is a box i th- i think personally it matters a lot more with what you do with it yeah um, what you yeah. put in it <clears throat> well yeah i guess my point is is that it seems like the hobby is moving towards more towards especially it's good to see snake keepers sort of moving their ball right because i mean if you listen back to the early days of NPR, we've talked mm-hmm. about it forever that like, mm-hmm. you know, monitor people, frog people are all like, you know, like light years ahead of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're paying attention to things like UVB and, and, you know, lights for the plants and bioactive and, and, and bringing out certain behaviors that the animal will do and highlighting those behaviors. And again, just like I used to say back in the day, mostly for our enjoyment to watch the animal. But I guess, so now it's being shown that you know providing more and more enrichment for the animal gives a healthier life. I think about all the times of coming up in the hobby and you know snakes getting cancer or they're prone to dying at ten years old. Is that you know um, is that obesity? One thing that I have noticed with my snakes from keeping them in racks is that the prehensile strength of their tail has sort of diminished over time. So 
my thinking is like you can just sort of feel it on the end like as opposed to my diamond pythons which always have their tail wrapped around a perch you know mm -hmm. some something it's like tight and it's holding on because they know if something comes along they have to use that anchor to sort of like okay prey's coming whoom you know but yeah the snakes and racks don't have right. that yeah and well, it's a, it's i guess it's just it like anything it, right yeah, yeah it's like using your muscles and working out you know if you don't work out every day eventually over time your muscles will deteriorate so i don't know i i think that i'm not saying that a snake is going to die because its tail isn't strong enough but like mm -hmm. you would think that the overall health of the animal will be improved by things like right. that you know mm -hmm. so I'm with you, Lucas, when it's like a box is a box. It's what you're doing in the box that to me mm -hmm. that matters, you know, because if you're providing that perch or whatever it would be or the hide box or the humidity that it needs to, to get or, you know, you know, that's another touch sure. button with carpet python people is humidity. Is it necessary? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> it's freaking humid <laughs> in Australia. I can tell you that. So, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You know? And letting I guess the natural history dictate what you think you need to do in that box, right? What I do for yes. snake A does not necessarily mean that's what I'll do for snake B, you know? Yeah. So here's a question. If you could, with without limitation of cost, if you had a massive facility to do this <laughs> and and had people to do it for you exactly how you wanted would you give every single animal like then set it up racks but cages or big spaces even for babies set up a facility where you had like the capacity to, to have 200 babies in little enclosures and everything going up the every animal the capacity to have uv and overhead basking light you know like naturalistic at least as far as the setup goes and do an entire facility like that and oh, raise yeah. everything up Okay, so yeah. I, think we all, I think we all agree that we would love that, right? Yes. So, so that's ideal. We're we're somewhere here. Yeah. There's a trajectory that we're still on to figure out how we can marry those two approaches. Yeah. The difference being everybody's access to those resources and cost and time and all that stuff. So, I think. I think there's a realistic spectrum and then there's a financial spectrum, but mm -hmm. you know, I think we all agree that we would love to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and I think just even keeping that in mind and trying to push the hobby forward in little ways right. where people who aren't, you know, so financially well off to do that stuff is the best, you know, we can keep trying to do until we get there. Cause eventually it's just gonna, it's going to keep getting better. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. too, at least for me, there's a little bit of a tug of war match between knowing what's best and just being addicted and a hoarder. Like I think yes. to an extent we're, we're all a little bit that and we got to yeah. call it what it is. Of course. Um, but you know, yeah. Just trying to do the best we can. Yep. Yeah. That's very true. The whole idea of, you know, I have to have the whole set. I have to have the whole, you know, whatever it would be, you know, I think at least for me, that's always been a struggle for me. You know, it's like, um, you know, I, I've just recently started to pull away from that. Like I got rid of all my Jags. It's like, okay, I don't need Jags. So I'm going to start with them. <laughs> so they all get, you know, the boot, you know, and dude, that's the great, I'm telling you what, man, that is the greatest move I ever made. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I mean, it, again, it's just that I think that like people eventually get there. You know, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of just 
continually to put out good information, not knock people down about what their decisions are. Like try to, you know, I, I don't know, just a better way of um, getting them to see the better way. I mean, Scott, he, he made two comments that are, are so on point. Carpet pythons are a bad example of this because they're so <laughs> very, they adapt to everything. That's yeah, very true. Stay, you know, <laughs> in the wild. I mean, most of the time, if you're finding a carpet python, it's in somebody's shed or their backyard yeah. or on their fence or, you know, um, it's in their attic, whatever it would be. So yeah, they're just going to adapt, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, when we did the student of the serpent, we were talking with uh, Justin Julander and we were talking about Walma pythons and, um, one of the things that he brought up was that, you know, Woma pythons are not as adaptive as carpets, right? right. So they're, they're stuck in this more of a, a specific habitat for them that they've, you know, been able to make work for millions of years. But, you know, if that habitat is gone, they'll probably be gone as well, you know, yeah. um, whereas carpets, it, you could build all the houses you want and they're just going to live in your yard or your shed or your attic or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, right. Um, uh, that, that just made me like wander mentally into like Womas. Womas live in sand, keeping animals on sand. Oh, how the hobby hates keeping animals <laughs> oh. on sand. So now it's I, funny, just want, right? I can't wait till I get Womas, dude, because we're breeding some at the shop and that one really nice reduced yes. pattern female, she is like, she's done. She's done. Really? Oh, yeah. She's, oh, yeah. She's going. The other yes, one I love historically that goes later. So she will go later. One way or another, I'm getting a pair. You bet you're out putting them on sand. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, the cool <laughs> thing that I, I, I'm trying to read the comments and at the same time, <laughs> um, the the cool thing that um, I saw about Walma pythons and putting them on sand was I think I, I want to say it was somebody in Australia or something, but they had this like really awesome setup, this like burrow, and mm-hmm. the substrate was sand. And there's the Walma python scooping the sand out, yeah. right, of that burrow with yeah. its neck. And I'm like, wow, you would never see that. Yeah. Even if you kept it in a four foot by two foot cage. Yeah. You're not going to see it if you don't have that kind of substrate or that kind of setup. So you're not going to, yeah. you're going to miss those behaviors. I'll and never like, forget you sending me that video. It made such yeah, a man, it was wild. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. And then yeah. reading the paper, I can't remember what her name was, um, but it's sort of like what we based the whole student and the serpent Woma episode off of. But um, they talked about just different behaviors that these Woma pythons would do up to the point of like the dragons would be sleeping on you know, spin effects or like, you know, logs or whatever. And the Walma pythons would go and eat those lizards right at night right. off of the, you know, so they're hunting and whatever. And like, they've adapted all these things that the fact that like when they're, you would never think of a Walma python as being arboreal, right? right? I didn't. And then they're finding them in trees and they're just like, wow. Yeah. That blew my mind. I had to go find that paper. It's the Melissa Brutton paper that's right? yes, yeah that's it i'll send it to you if you don't Dude, if it. the water I, over I there right was, here. <laughs> if the water over there was 80 degrees womas would live in water dude those things you want to talk about <laughs> i don't know man those things are adaptable as shit i'm sorry those things will breed a rope they'll eat whatever they'll eat your cell phone they'll as long as it's warm they're like we're good they're they're tough as nails man that's a that's a badass snake but yeah, they, they definitely are limited as far as their range goes. So they definitely have some sensitivities, clearly. But mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Uh, 
That's one so- of the points, what, I just want to throw this out there. It's just one of the points that Summer said is like, and I think this is what we were saying earlier, if you're a commercial breeder, you know, admit that the way you keep snakes is because it's practical, you know, and that's so true. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that this is the best way to do it, but if you're going to breed on this kind of scale, you know, um, I think the biggest shift is, is that it's moving away from, you know, this idea that you have to breed to mm-hmm. people just keeping, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah good and thing. and if, if people are asking advice from breeders on how they keep, they shouldn't be surprised when they get the, the breeding approach, uh, to their style of keeping IE racks or more efficient approaches. If you ask somebody who's keeping a pair or just a pet, you're going to get a completely different answer. As long as the parameters are the same, you've got a spectrum that you can cover as far as the style of like, you know, fully tub style all the way up to cage for most species. You know, yeah, like a I'm lot just... of pearls boas keepers uh, or breeders probably do it in tubs and rack systems, just a bigger system. And then the family that produced, you know, my pair out here, the the, the dad's a cabinet maker. He's got a big floor to ceiling, freaking <laughs> like massive display with a huge tree in it and these drawers in the bottom that pull out to nest bins and we're talking ground boas that are climbing up for bass and going back down and they had a huge 22 baby litter and they're phenomenal. So, you know, you can do kind of whatever you want as long as you play with the natural history of the animal. Man, I remember when I was a kid, my dad, he went and, um, again, this is before commercial caging or anything like that was available. So what he did is he had this huge, I want to say like, think of like uh, maybe a 150 gallon aquarium, right? Mm-hmm. So, I basically I could lay in which I know hobbits some small whatever (laughs) hands around or whatever but you know being able to actually lay down in it and be able to like sort of turn around so what he did is he took it to some place where they took the glass out right it took the glass out so it was just the metal frame I don't know if you remember you might you might be too young for this but back in the day when they made fish tanks it was like this stainless steel uh, border that they had, whereas today they don't really have it. It's just glass touches glass, you know? Right. Um, but he got the glass removed and he put wood around it and he made this, he turned it instead of it being this way, he turned it this way and he mm. put mangrove snakes in it. Nice. Oh, cool. man, it was badass, man. It was really cool. He had like all these, he had like a fake tree in there that he got and built. And yeah, know, it was so cool. You know, you just stand there and watch it forever you could see the snakes go up, you know, come down, you know, it would be hunting, all that kind of stuff. It was, it was really cool. Yeah. But. That reminds me of uh, seeing some of the videos that Kevin McCurley used to show of his emerald tree bows. It looks like he took AP cages and turned them on their sides and he's got a whole wall of them. It looks like a bunch of cages turned on their sides and there's perches horizontally. It's like water on the bottom and a bin and just plants and basking the animals just go up and down and, it was kind of a pretty interesting idea. Um, and then the other thing it reminded me of are the, uh, the vertical, like you take the hide and put it on the ceiling of a cage and have the little class that slides in and right. uh, yeah. see, that's the ingenuity that's coming around these days. I get so geeked when I see so I saw ideas like that. Yeah. I saw somebody, what they did was they did that same type of thing. I, I can't remember who the video was. And it's not somebody that's like really popular on YouTube, but I just had stumbled upon it. 
uh, just to try to get ideas. But basically what they did is they made this hide box, but they made the hide box so that it was on the outside of the cage and you could open a door. And when you open the door, there was like a bin that was in it. And basically this would be like the egg laying box. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he, he ran like this PVC pipe up to, um, sort of like, I guess like, uh, sort of like a, 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 like he made a rock face out of like the, uh, the, what is that stuff called? The tough stuff or what, you know, like the foam, the standing foam. So he, he sort of surrounded that with that stuff. And so when you look at it in the cage, it's just like this, you know, it's similar to like what Matt Somerville did with those, uh, with the crack beach and all, where he had like this tubes that went down and the snakes would go down into, into the burrows down at the bottom. But he did that. And like the snake could go in there. Um, you still are able to like, uh, you know, you can open it and see what the snake is doing without the snake coming out at you. But I thought, man, that is such, mm -hmm. that is so cool because you're still getting that breeder side of it and you're not really, you know, you're making it easy clean because it's just going right into a tub. Right. And it's got sphagnum moss in there and it's, you know, set up like that. So I'm sure humidity was good and all that stuff. Um, but on the outside for what you saw in the cage, it just looked like there's this rock and there's a hole right. in the rock that right. goes into the thing. I was like, man, that you is just that. so cool. You could do you know? that, man. That's, that's, yeah doable um la zoo does that with a lot of their their venomous stuff in the behind the scenes so if you go to the la zoo years ago they redid it it's called a lair living amphibians invertebrates and reptiles it's just like big massive overhaul of their whole reptile displays it's fantastic and uh for for example one of their mamba enclosures uh because it's a walk-in enclosure floor to ceiling one thing on the door they've got a 360 degree peephole but what they do is they've got the snakes conditioned to going into exactly like you said, like a little porthole into a shift box for feeding. So they'll feed them in that shift box. So the snakes go into this shift box that's attached to the back wall behind the scenes. They right. can cloak guillotine door, lock it, lock this entire box, take it off the, the enclosure wall and then service the enclosure safely while the animals eating undisturbed in a locked secure box Nice. put it back in and they never have to put hooks on the animal or anything. The snake can come and go voluntarily. And, uh, you could absolutely use that exact same approach for anything, whether it just be right. feeding for venomous, just for a high sure. box, just for fun for a, a high stress snake, anything. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, I'm thinking of species like Halmahera pythons where it's like, they're super shy and super, you know, hard to establish and such. And maybe something like that will, you know, yeah. give you, uh, give you the ability to, to keep them not as stressed. Uh, cause we all know what stress does. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, that would probably, if I had like space on the side, that would be interesting to try with uh, the Madagascar hog nose. Cause they're super high stress all the time too. At least the wild caught adults are. They're assholes. They're like, <laughs> they still full cobra hood, fling pee, and do the whole thing at me. So they would really benefit from that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I finally, uh, I, I don't know if I sent you the picture, but I finally moved my bookshelf. Ooh. Oh, nice. look at all them books. <laughs> wow. That's Dude, awesome. You're going to need to go around the whole wall and get one of those like roller library ladders that swings yeah. and 
on the track. Oh, man, you've, you've, been, you've been hanging around Owen too much. Racks? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you what. This book. This one. There he goes. Look oh, at that's the size of Arizona. No. Snakes, Snakes of Arizona. Arizona. Ooh, look how thick that is. Holy crap. <laughs> Damn. It came in the it came so Nipper was super nice and sent me this um for Christmas and he bought one as well. I guess he can't buy it over in the UK, so now I have to ship oh. it to him. And it comes <laughs> up, right? And there's two of these in the box, and I'm like, oh what the hell is in this box? <laughs> it's like a 10-pound box. Yeah. They did That's an amazing awesome. job. They did an amazing job with yeah, that. Yeah, I saw photos of it online. I didn't realize this the size of it until just now. That's huge. Have either of yeah. you guys herped in Arizona before? No. Supposed to go this year. Yeah. I've been there and, like, you know, chased fence lizards around my cousin's yard. <laughs> totally. I don't think that counts. I had three days in Tucson a year ago, September, and I was trying to find rattlesnakes. I was herping, and all I found was a really cute little scorpion. Couldn't okay. find any snakes. But Man, yeah, I was actually out there. I was out there the perfect time of year. I was out there for spring training for baseball. Nice. I don't know how many species of snake are there, but man, I mean, and this book is the, you know, I was talking to Rob about it and I was like, Rob, this book is so thick. Like how many species <laughs> are there? It must be all snakes. No wonder everybody wants to go there. But there's, um, there's a, it's like 13 species of rattlers out there, right? I think so. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah. A, yeah. It's on the list to go. So oh, hopefully yeah. this year we can uh, make it happen. It's an easier place for Riley and I to meet you. <laughs> yeah, it's on our side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's an easy road trip. Yeah, we were we were we were talking about um, our Australia trips and you know like trying to figure out when is that going to come around again or like where what's the next trip going to be or whatever. And, um, you know, me and him were like really jonesing about going back up to like the Cape York and, um, he already has the itinerary laid out and I'm like, dude, man, he's like, you, would you go? And I'm like, dude, that's carpet Python Mecca right there. I mean, like, it's like just chock full of carpet pythons in that whole area and to see a, maybe a green tree, right? Yeah. Like, dude, how badass would that be? So we're going back and forth and. You know, we're talking and we're like, wow, we really don't have that many species to tick off as far as pythons in Australia. And like if we got that trip and saw a spotted python, we'd be I think we'd be we're at nine. Wow. Nine species. Nice. Damn. Yeah. So hop over to the Kimberly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if we can find them, that's an easy the, the rest will be easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, your track record for rare species is currently good. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I just like, cause I know Riley, you got your money back and I still haven't done anything with my ticket. So I'm like, does it yeah, dude, pay I'm in limbo for another year or I'm not I'm, sure. I'm hoping this year, uh, this coming year, 2021 allows international travel to, to open up without that two week uh, quarantine period. You know, assuming this, this whole phase with the vaccines and, and things sort of 
turns a corner for the world as far as the the covid stuff is concerned and we you'll have go. your little your little vaccine card to let you on the plane you know something whatever it is you know what it, god damn it i hope they don't make us get a vaccine just to travel internationally i'm kind of like on the fence about it but that's another story We're not gonna <laughs> that's, get that's that. another topic well, i have no. to that needle in my arm to get to australia so be it i know that's kind <laughs> yeah. of where my head's at as much so as I'm yeah i feel like fuck it um I'll take but, uh, yours, Riley. <laughs> Just put see, it in me now. <laughs> but the thing is, like, I, dude, I've got all the gear still sitting next to my freaking bed from when I was like yeah. three days ready to go. Three dude, days, dude. it's sitting uh-huh. literally right there. Like my Camelback is still packed with everything ready to freaking go. <sighs> That just so hurts. That's just you. a reminder of pain. <laughs> I, was, I was so excited. I was so excited. Like, oh, Riley's going to lose his fucking mind, man. He's just going to go crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so, because when you're excited about something and then you watch somebody else that's excited about mm-hmm. the same thing, you get even more excited. And you're like, yeah, ah, this is great. And I was so I was so overworked at the time. I was ready to be quarantined oh. and stuck over there for however long it took. I was ready. I was oh, like, yeah, man. screw it. Take me, <laughs> take me. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think, well, I think we kind of decided that, you know, if, if Australia did open, it wouldn't open until, you know, later in 2021, yeah. if that, if, so we're kind of like looking 2022, yeah. um, which gives no Owen enough time to save up for the Kimberly trip. That helps <laughs> me out too. You know, if, yeah, man. <laughs> if 2021 ends up being the year where I buy a house, I'm going to need some time to recover yeah. financially. Yeah. <laughs> And Ooh, um, wow, it's more room. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Do you know how many snakes are in here? Do you know the square footage without? No. It's not. It's not a. It's not a good number. You have to calculate snake per inch. Okay, that that might. I don't know. Those numbers are devastating. Oh. <laughs> that reminds me of my early days when I had this little uh, bedroom apartment uh, as my snake room, mm-hmm. and uh, like. Basic, yeah, like, and basically, I had every inch of that room, yep, with with some kind of cage or mostly racks and stuff, yep. but just like everything. And Owen used to make fun yeah. of me because I used to have to get like, just like you were saying earlier with the library thing, yeah, you know, the ladder that scrolls yeah. down. <laughs> like, hold on, I know where that snake is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got I got space right here. I could easily fit another five or six b70 little you know so that i'm looking at and more hatchling racks so i'm not done i will squeeze every damn inch out of this room while i'm here that's for damn sure but when you move and you get a bigger room Mm -hmm. you're just gonna be like oh my god (laughs) well so the plan is to make as much efficient space or use of this space as possible and if if you know things go well and I finish paying off my car in the next couple months and we get into a house and I've got the room, what I want to do is actually not buy animals, but buy caging. And I remember seeing what? the Anthony <laughs> Caponetto three foot carpet cages. And I, and I want to, I want to get to a system where I have like all my females in cages whether they're four foot or three foot because i've got some small females and then i'd like to have males in small cages as well and make use of some shelves and things so i can be just as efficient as the rack but you know afford them a little more moving room um and then just do babies in in hatchling racks babies and like yearlings sort of thing so i will you know the the looking forward to the house is more of like 
getting more towards what we were just talking about earlier. And that's, and that's doing a little bit more towards the spatial side and like opening up things for the existing animals, because I, you know, truth be told, like we're never satisfied with the animals we could keep. Right. There's always something we'd love to have. Uh, and yeah. you know, most, most of what I want really is either at your house, Eric, or with Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's it like I've got a good focus, a good scope on things. And so like next, I'd love to see, you know, just this mature a little bit more, you know? Nice. So. Yeah. 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 It's it, that's sort of why I got sort of stuck up in. It's like, um, you know, I think if I were to do it over again, I think when I was getting into it, I sort of like I, I, I jumped in and I just bought just as many as I could of whatever it would be, you know, mm-hmm. um, let's say carpet pythons. It's like, I, I didn't work a project and then move on to the next project. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I was working like 20 projects at once. And yeah. it's like, when you're trying to balance that, I find that you lose, I, I, I don't know, for me, I, I sort of lost, I, I lost the edge, I guess, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. I, and then I would see people with a smaller collection you know, um, just come out of the gate, just like gun. Like I, I, if you take me and Owen, right? Like if you look at Owen, right? So I used to, I say this all to him all the time, right? He's caramel carpets, right? So we got caramels at the same time, but he was like, that's what he did. He, he focused on these caramels and his caramels were unbelievable, you know, like they're amazing. And I don't think he gets enough credit for his caramels that he produces. And especially right. if it's all the ones he started with, yeah. there were, dirt ugly man (laughs) you know and um but in the meantime i'm like doing albino i'm doing this i'm doing zebra granite that and da 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 da, and you know i gotta put the citrus tiger and i get it and all this stuff and you're like i you know and he's just like all i'm doing is caramels and it's like he's got the finished product and i'm over here like well i i have the animals to make it i just right yet you know yeah so I, that's where that same internal turmoil I have comes from. It's the the specialized versus spreading yourself out into all the projects you want to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like uh, yeah. Summer uh, Summer a made rule. a good point. <laughs> I made a rule for myself that I wasn't allowed to buy any more <laughs> animals until I got all my current animals in cages. Well, she did it. Now, yes. Now you're free. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a great example. Like that's perfect. You know, right. that's, that's kind of like somebody who really focused, put their mind towards a goal and did it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's absolutely commendable. I think I did the same thing as you, Eric, when I first jumped in, I was like, carpet, carpet, carpet. I need this, need that, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 give me, give me, give me, give me. And I had the most random ass collection of Morelia in 2014 and 2015 that made no sense. And it's changed considerably, but looking at how many different projects I've got going, I've got like five or six different, you know, species, subspecies projects and things going. And I'm wondering if I would have been more successful had I focused more on like one or two at the time. Sorry, I'm getting distracted because my albino Darwin's actually using her log for the first time in like eight months. Ah, (laughs) there you go. Very cool. Yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I, I, It's it's funny how you just you learn, at least for me, I learned these things by making the mistakes. But there was nobody really there sort of like pushing you in a direction, you know. I mean, like when yeah. I was coming in the hot back into the hobby, most of 
what everything was about was breeding. If you weren't a breeder, if you weren't breeding something cool, then you were just not cool. You know, there was very few people that were keepers. And I don't know, the older I get, the more I find that I'm actually more fascinated with the behavior of the snakes or the reptiles or whatever it would be than the actual breeding part of it. The breeding part is like, I did that and it was great. And I will still breed. I'm not going to say that I'm not going to breed, but it's not going to be that uh, rat race, I guess, if you will. And that's kind of like like this year. I don't even know if I'm going to breed. You know, I, I think the one year that I took off, I was still worried <laughs> about taking the year off. Like, oh, my God, everybody's going to be ahead of me. You know that mindset, man? Like everybody yeah. has that mindset back in yeah. the day. Like yeah. I'm going to use a year of production and I'm going to lose it. And how am I going to – everybody's yeah. not going to And then you had stuff. a home run year. You yeah, still and then produce like, the Tullys, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, stuff like that. You have to. But you know, I, I it's like, do I produce this locality jungle that's super super rare in the hobby, or do I worry about you know cramming another morph into you know yeah. a carpet, if you know? I don't know. Yeah. It seems like that as sort of phased out of carpets. Do you get that feeling? I kind of feel that. Like I don't. Yeah, I don't feel a pull towards morph stuff really. And yeah. I see and I it say out that there. as somebody that has only been into this for a few years, but yeah. I you still I mean, see some of it. Yeah, you yeah, still see still some there. of it, but it's not like remember how it was like say five years ago? Yeah, I do. Everybody yeah. hated each other and they're always yeah. yelling at each other and <laughs> oh, it's yeah. like such tension. If you're friends oh, with yeah. this guy, you can't be friends with that one, and you know. Yeah. <sighs> just crazy yeah it they, like high they, school it was interesting well and it was so <laughs> divided too like if you're yeah. a purist if you're a purist you couldn't be friends with people who mixed shit and like you had to pick one or the other and like i always rode the fence on that but i had friends that were purists and then i knew yeah. the whole you know the ethics behind it and the reasons for and why people don't care and i was just like ah i don't know what to do this is hectic <laughs> <laughs> wait who do who who do i be friends with i don't know yeah it was was crazy it was overwhelming and i think that has moved out i don't really see you know i have more people hit me up about a poplin carpet than i do about and maybe that's just that you know no that's true dude that's know me for that but i don't hear anybody like yo man do you have like an albino zebra granite jag or whatever you know yeah yeah but I think I think people are starting to appreciate things, you know, without morphs a lot more nowadays. I think that's just yeah. it was inevitable that the pendulum would swing back, right? It's just now I think we're really seeing it. And uh, you know, I mean, I remember when when we first started, um, you know, people were getting rid of popwoods. I remember talking to to Todd like five years ago, and he didn't even have any any IJs, any poplins, because like you couldn't sell them because at the time people thought they were just dirt snakes that weren't even worth a hundred dollars. Yeah. So he got, yeah. So he, you know, over time moved them all out of his collection. And nowadays, you know, you can't, you can't find them. They're hard to get. Everybody wants them and they're, you know, no longer hundred, two hundred dollar snakes. They're like elusive and, you know, lineage quality driven and, you know, good stock driven, there's value and there's variety and there's enough people behind them. It's made it, you know, sort of open people's eyes. So like, dude, these aren't just, 
These are just another brown snake. These are the one carpet you can import. They are the one carpet that, you know, you can still get new blood in. They are the one carpet that hasn't been completely like overworked by everybody and, and you know, hasn't hit some pinnacle. It's like untapped potential with so much more there that it's just, I think people are finally waking up to that fact. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, one of the things that Rob used to say to me when when we first started talking to each other is like he appreciated my vision, right? So mm-hmm. he he could see where IJs would go, whereas everybody else is like, you know, I, it, it was so crazy because I would be talking to people about them and they would be like, sort of like what you said. I would be talking to guys like Todd or Jason Balin or like, you know, as we were at Tinley Park and everybody's like, ah, oh, they're just bullshit dirt snakes. Who cares about them? Look at this, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, but I, I like these. You know, yeah. <laughs> like wait till a couple years, you'll see, you know, yeah. the orange will pop, this will pop. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think uh I think there's a few people, like I, I'm not necessarily a ball python person, but I think of uh Kabelka and mm-hmm. like his vision that he has is like um, it's like second to none, like with where he sees a project going and trying to get to there. Um, Keith McPeak, Matt Minotola, those guys, all people that have like this vision of like, oh, I'm going to take this. Oh, look, it has a little orange spot here. I'm going to, you know, make this orange like insane. And mm-hmm. it's so crazy that carpet people just don't get that with other subspecies. But yet we have the perfect example right in front of our faces when you look at jungle carpets. Yeah. I mean, you get any yellower or black. I mean, I don't know. It just seems again, it's that vision of saying, okay, this looks like this now, like the two wild caught females I have in quarantine, um, do the orange on these things are just insane. And they're yeah. from, they're from the wild, like straight off the dirt. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, that's badass. I think that's the coolest part about it is because you have a closer connection with the animals and their wild counterparts and the, where they came from. You know, some people might actually have issues with that being wild caught, but you know, you look into the the wild caught status of of IJs and popwoods. It's actually pretty fairly well regulated, and it's always coming in under quota. I think as far as how much they're taking out annually. So the demand doesn't exceed what they've calculated as a, a sustainable removal for the populations out there. So, you know, we'll just interject that and then throw it aside so nobody, you know, thinks we're being insensitive to it. But yeah, you you really because you have something that comes straight out of nature, it's beautiful, you appreciate it for what it is. It, you know exactly that that animal hatched out in the wild, hatched out over there and now is in your care and you can see that it's beautiful and you can see what could be refined and you can, you just have that instant, like closer connection. And I think that it has something a little more tangible for us. And, you know, I think there's going to come a time where Indonesia is shut down and maybe it'll open back up and, you know, but like, I think uh, for me to have uh, as much diversity as I can, in a bloodline or different bloodlines or different wild caught animals that I can have as genetic. I can offer a customer the most genetically diverse animal that I can. Mm -hmm. 
is kind of the goal. I don't want to get like, you know, I, I don't I don't see myself importing like say the way they imported ball pythons back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if they still do they still do that. Yeah, I don't think it happens in mass quantity like that. Yeah, I think it yeah. does still happen though, like crates of new wild caught farm stuff. I think that's an actual sustainable like ecotourist type industry over there in some places. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah that's the some... other side of that, man. You know, like when you hear guys like Daniel Natouche talk about the other side of it, the side that mm-hmm. we don't see, where you know, in order for this person to feed his family, or you know, they go and catch a snake, and you know, they're able to survive for couple months or whatever mm-hmm. um i don't know man that's such a hard that, uh, that's a tough that's tough yeah. well the, <laughs> the whole thing about like illegal and smuggling and these terms oh, they're all they're all they're all human constructs of somebody else's perspective that sort of is supposed to be guided by morality and ethics and we're told to believe that and if you really break it down sometimes it isn't so you know you can't just you can't just go off like ah, oh, you know it, it can actually be quite beneficial there's a lot of evidence for for conservation type of work going from stimulating and, and interest in species like that so it can be very good but yeah i mean like what about all the guys out in borneo the skin traders that are catching short tails and stuff you know and that's how they've made their made their living was through the skinning trade and now you know, there's also a captive bred market. And so, especially with ball pythons, those guys will protect their the plots of land where they have those animals out living with their lives because they'll harvest the babies, put the females back, and that's how they pay for things. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I think, I think, you know, as I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, I think the, the, the greatest thing that I've done in 2020 is pull myself away from social media. Mm-hmm. And as far as like not paying attention to, the drama or the bullshit or listen to somebody else tell me how I should keep my snakes and let me try to figure it out myself and do what works with what I'm visually seeing with that animal. Mm -hmm. This whole idea that like this cookie cutter approach to keeping animals is just, it's just silly to me. And I think if you've kept animals on any level and you've diversified species, you start to see like, okay, I keep 95 IJs this way, but these five, you know, I have to keep them differently. You know, like yeah. I, I use the example all the time is I had the Halmahara scrub. Um, and no matter what I did, I kept it in a cage because I thought, you know, it just came from the wild and I'm going to try to recreate that as best as I can. And um, the thing just stressed out mm-hmm. and I couldn't, you know, so I had to move it to a tub, which, you know, back in those days, even keeping a scrub in a tub was like, huh, scrub in a tub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like uh you know the the idea that like i'm not going to put it in this tub because somebody's going to blast me on facebook and meanwhile just have the animal stress out and die Mm -hmm. i don't know it seems silly to me and um after getting established now granted say 10 years from now the uh equipment that's here today wasn't available so you know you you, you couldn't keep it like i guess that argument today might i might say that maybe providing it with um uh, more of a naturalistic setup to where it can get in like various hides or hide back in in foliage or stuff like that may have helped that process without moving it to a tub but you know i, I didn't have that available so right but it's it's essentially creating the same effect. You're creating a dark, 
you know, secluded, snug spot that isn't exposed. And that's what the yeah. animal wanted. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I've, 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 we, I think all of us have talked about, you know, tub versus racks and all this stuff left and right. But, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, aside from bigger enclosures allowing the snakes the opportunity to exhibit these behaviors if they are comfortable and if all this is available to them, you know, snakes are only out in the open doing stuff when they're looking for food, looking for mates, escaping predators, shedding, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Otherwise, they're trying to be as efficient in survival mode as possible, which is conserve energy and stay out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. Where is that best done? Somewhere snug, safe, and secure where they are not exposed on all four sides above or below. And sure. so that's why I think that's why rack systems really work well, um, at least for animals that lack confidence. And I think confidence is something we don't talk about in our animals' behavior because we look at them as just cold blooded reptiles, very instinctually based. But you can't tell me within a clutch of babies that you see various levels of confidence in the in the decision making, like why that baby is deciding to hide that way, why that baby is deciding to be out in the open, why that baby took food first and why that baby waited six months. You know, you see various amounts of confidence in these animals, whether they're given the same environment or not. And I think that's where what you just said comes into play. You just have to be able to roll with it and give your animal what they need, regardless of what the cookie cutter approach says, because sometimes animals haven't read the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. the book was written about what they did and they're still doing right. stuff. The book isn't done. So we keep writing the book and rewriting the book and rewriting the book. And that's essentially just being students of the serpent and constantly right. adjusting. Yeah. I don't think that we have even scratched the surface with understanding snake behavior um and what really makes them tick you know Um, i think that there's so much more to learn um i you know i don't know and giving credit towards towards individualization i mean like you're Mm -hmm. saying yeah they're not robots you know (laughs) each one is different and and that variation is necessary uh for for you know, success in nature, right? Maybe the most mm-hmm. confident baby dies because it crawls mm-hmm. right out and gets picked off immediately. Maybe the shy mm-hmm. one's the one that lives because it was, mm-hmm. you know, right. hiding away. So things like mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I think that variation in behavior and um, things like that are part of why these animals have been successful for so long because it casts a wide net to what will work and what won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway <laughs> lucas when you get your first pop wins you will see how different they are from your from your bread lie from your oh. soon to be inlands yeah like <laughs> you will like I, I swear if you put if you set them up the same they'll do just fine but i guarantee you're going to get a different set of behaviors out of those animals compared to your centralians like i believe day, it yeah and day. there's probably and different it. behaviors amongst the same Papuan group as well. oh of course yeah. dude of yeah. course i've got i've got three holdbacks for my 2019 clutch and uh two of them the two females will like religiously soak and flood their arboreal water bowl to like spill water all over the floor and then sit in an empty water bowl, but they make the whole damn thing saturated. Right. But then the male doesn't, he doesn't do that. He'll sit near the water. And if it's like, if I overfilled it and he like throws a coil and it might spill some, but the other two, 
just because there's condensation on the cage uh, doesn't mean, you know, they've made a mess. I just know mm-hmm. that those two spill their water. And that's within, like, siblings, so. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's even within, you know, you take carpet pythons, right? My observations have been um, that I've noticed that Darwin carpets like to be more arboreal. I've noticed that poplin carpets love to sit in their water bowl. I don't know why they just do. Um, I've talked to Nick about that multiple times and that's sort of even stumped him. Like, you know, we were just throwing ideas back and forth. Like, why would this be like, why, why would they, why out of all of them would they be one? Are we not keeping them with enough humidity? Is it, what, what is lacking that's causing them to do that. So like, and I remember back when I first came into, you talked about the AP cage, right? So it had that shelf in there. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people would talk a lot of times about, you know, like carpets, like, you know, wanting to perch, but then you would talk to people that keep carpets and it's like, nah, they never use the shelf. They never <laughs> use that. They never, they never do it. They ne- they're just, you know, and then it wasn't until I, somebody designed the, the other thing you were talking about earlier, where they put the hide box at the top. Right. And then it's like, okay, now if you keep a carpet, most of them are going to be hiding in there. So it's about sort of like, I think we sort of like we, the idea was, okay, we're going to give it perching and we're going to give it this way. Right. And then as soon as it didn't use it, we stopped. You know what I mean? We just are like, oh, okay. They don't like it. And then it became, well, carpets don't need to, to perch. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think sometimes experimenting with those things and seeing like, you know, I think Lori does a really good job at trying to figure out like what they actually prefer, you know, yeah. like what uh, what do they actually want to do? And as she kind of backs me up on the idea that uh, the Darwins out of all of them like to perch. Um, diamonds, pythons seem to be that way, too, you know. Um, yeah. Like my, this snake, my Darwin's- this perch. Well- my Darwin's draping over hers right now. Oh, nice. Field trip. Oh, nice. Oh, that is awesome. Is that the yeah. reduced pattern right there? Yeah. 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 Badass. Nice. Yeah, see, I, I think I think there's a lot of subtleties that people are starting to pay more attention to these days now. And we're starting to we're starting to see those differences more. Like I, I definitely my Darwin's don't handle the same as my other snakes. No. No, they handle very differently. They remind me much more of green trees in the way like they react to my hands and support and how like they just get cruising because I'm not holding them the way they want. Um, (laughs) It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting, too. I mean, just the like we're saying, the variation amongst individuals, like my two blackheads are polar opposites of each other when it comes to handling the one that's with with yours Mm -hmm. right now, Riley. He grips on, he holds on almost, almost in like a prehensile way, you know, he'll wrap mm-hmm. the tail. The girl won't grab onto me at all. She's like, just trying to fall. Like, she would <laughs> drop, you know, six feet if I let her to get away. So, Jeez. you know, they very much have, uh, have unique personalities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a question there about, um, if your pop wins, um, uh, are soaking all the time. Is it all of yours? I would say 95% of mine do. Hmm. Oh, let's see. Those. No, none of them. Um, no, 
I, I think it's only just a couple of mine do. I wouldn't say all of them. I, I don't even know if half of them do. I think, I think it's just those younger ones. And I don't know if that's because the older ones I have are in better insulated enclosures where there's less humidity or less uh, ventilation. So they don't feel the need to, um, but I don't, it's just, it, it seems random for, for my animals. It just seems very random and probably personality based at that. And the other so. part that I think people don't take into consideration is the difference between where we're at, right? Yes. You're on the West coast. I'm on the East coast. So is something here on the East coast affecting that so that like 95% of mine are in the water bowl. Whereas like you're saying it's hit or miss with yours. Um, so what's the difference? Um, yeah. you know, I don't know if it's something to do with the cold winter, which is the dry heat, which, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're trying to get more humidity or whatever, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a lot of cloud cover here lately. We've been getting some rain. Um, and so there's been a lot more condensation on my snake room windows throughout the day. Like there definitely is at night, but it's staying longer. So I don't think it's burning off as much. So I think right now we've got a little spike in humidity, which is rare for out here. Cause we get this like kind of, dry winter air um but in the summer you know it, it'll probably be a different story right i've got an arboreal false water cobra right now can you guys oh, see, yeah, I can see that <laughs> that's got awesome all, uh, what's all the temperament up? with them like what are they, are they so pretty far, chill so good are they... for, for both of my two they're both very very chilled out um neither have have tried to take any shots uh but yeah, just super inquisitive, very, very visual. Um, yeah. I can be on the other side of the room and I'm being watched very mm -hmm. obviously. <laughs> but uh, this is actually the most active that, that this dude has been since I put him in the new enclosure. He burrows. He gets under the cypress mulch and periscopes his head out. Nice. I love the periscoping. Yeah. They do that a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the girl that I still have in quarantine hoods up a lot more than than the boy here behind me, but. How are they when it comes to feeding time? Oh, ferocious. <laughs> like, <laughs> like pogo stick. Just yeah. They explode out of the hide. They flail all over the place. And I've never seen a snake eat something so quickly. Uh -huh. That's what it's like a greased hot dog going going down the throat. Like wow. Yep. They just that's crazy. Ung, 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 ung. like they when inhale. you when you hear rear fang, don't let them chew on you. Like no, you don't have a chance. Like the second this thing bites down on the, it's on the mouth, it's probably chewed like five times in a second. And yeah. It's halfway down the throat, you know? Yep. Um, wow. So the, fast. Yeah. the big male at Santa Barbara that uh, I used to care for, I'd have to have food on forceps ready to go when yeah. I open this door and I'd have to stand back and open it with a hook just to give myself a buffer of room because he'd mm -hmm. come flying out the door. And I'd put the rat in front of him and I'd hold it just so and he'd go past the rat and then come back <laughs> just so he could eat it butt first every time. Wow. <laughs> now did sick. you get did you get any constriction? Because I don't. They just go straight no, for the no, for the he just he just grabs it and flails. He'll yeah. fall to the ground. You can pick him up and put him back in, whatever. Yeah, he, he just starts wolfing it down. It's the same with my Kribos. They just start eating right away, unless they get a weird grip. Then they'll just crush it into the ground or against the wall or something until they can adjust to the side and then just eat it all like just yeah. absolute wood chippers. Awesome. Wow. And to address uh, the question from Summer there, I think in the wild they're pretty generalist feeders. Um, amphibians, fish, 
uh, birds, snakes, small mammals. I think they they're garbage mm-hmm. disposals. You could hand food. you could hand them a frozen thawed like um, herring and they'll eat it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Zach Lofman feeds his trout. Yeah, his whole rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. Just trilling <laughs> right yeah. down the gullet. <laughs> yep, and it'll come out the next day. It's that fast. Uh huh. Yeah, that's what wow. he's saying. It comes out as more of a schmear when you do fish, but there mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Same with Krebos. Yeah. Good for you guys, man. I'll stick with my, you know, big chip <laughs> pythons. I well, guess. Well, weren't you weren't you thinking about some North American colubrids as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You want so, decays. what's that? You want decays? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> decays. I would love to have a naturalistic setup of decay snakes. I think they are super cool. Oh, I, I don't know. Not tokays. No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> They're my finger. I've had them. Yeah, yeah, right. That was from bastard. Good thing <laughs> damn gecko. If you said nah, I changed my mind, I'd have made up by it. Anyway, decay yeah, snakes. I, I've I've been toying with that idea, but you know, again, it's like one of those things where it's like, ah, stay focused, stay focused. You mm-hmm. know, not too mm-hmm. many, not too many. So I think to get my colubrid fix out in the um for North America is about field herping for me, right? Totally. go see them in the yeah. wild um, nice. i get more enjoyment out of that that's where i'm at with with that yeah. kind of stuff for sure yeah. 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 yeah i tried going back to keeping king snakes again because like my first snake was a california king snake so a few years ago i had some and uh i think six months in i was just like man it's just not the same anymore and uh i sold them to a friend and yeah like i've got my corn snakes that i love but you know they're just different and and i think uh I think, yeah, if I were to deal with North American stuff, it would just be, you know, living vicariously through others' collections, enjoying that or herping, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think, uh, you know, I've said this multiple times, but I don't think that I would um, uh, be as happy herping in North America as I was in Australia. But I had a good time, man. It was really cool. You know, there's some really cool species out there. Yeah. Um, and, and really cool environments and stuff and things that we have here that nobody else has in the world. And yeah, I don't totally. know. It's good to appreciate that stuff. You know, we're just oh, yeah. lacking in cool arboreal things here. I feel like the, the North <laughs> American snakes never decided to climb trees. I don't know. Yeah. You see a rattlesnake in a tree or rat snakes <laughs> in trees. I mean, I was actually watching, uh, do it, but it's not like, not like a, tree python or something like that sure sure yeah i think that resides yeah i was watching uh the the nkf herpings recent video and he it's like freezing cold 50 degrees or something he's finding like cotton mouths and rat snakes out in trees and stuff like that it's crazy and it's it's just really cool to see that one cotton mouth he had seen a bunch of times and uh had an infected eye and this time he sees it and eyes like just gone and the infection's healing and and then another rat snake's just like hiding in some bushes or under some leaves. And it looks like it's just weathering the winter. It just looks skinny and cold and beat up, but it's just cruising around doing its thing, like checking them out. And it's just, you know, when you see that, it's it's kind of hard to to not appreciate, like just at least our diversity here. You know, we, we spend so much time admiring what's in Australia and Indonesia that it, it ends up becoming exotic in its own right because it's so different than what we spend all our time focusing on and uh and i think that's recently Slide why me I've... up for womas and whiskey womas and whiskey <laughs> oh, so oh, shit. That's gonna end, yeah only 
tune in seriously for the first 30 minutes, the last hours of shit show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, I think, uh, animals at home. He, he said, do you guys think we will start to see or restart seeing more species and diversity in the reptile trade in the next few years? Yes. I, I think, I think we will. And I think that, I think that people that do podcasts or YouTube or any kind of platform is sort of like, it's sort of what we kind of did with Moralia, right? Mm -hmm. You know, before Moralia, before we did the podcast, Moralia was sort of like this underground group of people that, like, you know what I mean, they're like, yeah. I, I don't know. It's like, oh, those guys, we don't crab people, crab people, uh, crabbits. Um, but, uh, but the more and more you, you promote, uh, the correct information and it still frustrates me when I see people that I just saw some video the other day and I'm watching it and they're putting out the wrong information. And I'm just like, Oh my God, uh, it just frustrates me. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's happens. And I think that like, uh, again, back to, uh, to, um, you know, just promoting species that maybe people don't know about that maybe are cool and why they're cool. And I think that, you know, um, People just don't know about that stuff. Right. You know, yeah. like they just know like whatever's cool or fashionable at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. oh, the like, misinformation and the the blind spots, just the utter lack of information, I feel like really is our, our biggest yeah. adversary in all this um, yeah. in, in yeah. many ways, you know, not just from fellow keepers, but also just <laughs> the, yeah. the public at large. Yeah. Um, I think that. Education yeah, I, so I see so much of it at work these days. Like, it's 2020, and some of these animals that should be like no brainers as far as like how to keep, or at least a couple quick Google searches to like steer you in the right direction. People are still, you know, dropping the ball big time. I don't mean to like rag on anything in particular, but I. I had a customer have to buy a replacement baby bearded dragon for his daughter's Christmas present because hmm. he didn't know to turn the light off at night. Oh, he fried the damn thing for a week and didn't, didn't pick up on the fact that this thing was hiding under a rock in the, the farthest corner, like cooking, uh. not eating. And, and like his excuse was, well, the guy at the counter didn't tell me to turn the light off at night. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that, that goes back to maybe one brain cell thinking about what happens to the sun. <laughs> it goes away. <laughs> like, Unbelievable. Just, just use the one. <laughs> just idiotic negligence is like all I can happens say. Happens every day. Yeah. <laughs> Where have you been, buddy? Oh, like, that's, that's terrible. And it's yeah. sad because guess what? That animal suffered and then the other animal is now viewed as just a disposable like, Hope I get this one right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, Swap the, the goldfish overnight kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's the one thing that I hate. I hate about yep. selling snakes, right? Yeah. That's why I would so much rather give a snake to somebody that I know is going to take care of it and, and appreciate it for what it is. And, uh -huh. you know, then to have to sell to somebody that I know, like, I, you know, I, somebody contacted me the other day and was like, they started, you know, to ask me questions or whatever, which I don't have a problem with. It's like, Hey, you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes, sometimes I get a little frustrated because it's like, well, I have this website that I put all this work into <laughs> and all the information. Podcast. You can tell when somebody <laughs> has it on it. any research. You can tell Nine when somebody has <laughs> yeah. about the same thing to the point where we're sick and tired and talking about it yeah like, and it's like okay and then you just know 
the further and further you get that, that this is just not good. And yeah. you know, it's just, you know, it's going to end badly. And yeah. I don't know. I just, I hate that. I hate that. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I have had two people in the last week come and go, what are your cheapest turtles? <laughs> None of them are cheap. There's no such thing that might say $30 for the turtle, but guess what the tank and all this other says mm-hmm. $400. Like there's no such thing as a cheap turtle. And if that's what your, you know, if that's Dude. what your first question is, then maybe you should consider oh, getting. Oh man, <laughs> I, I walk a fine line being in that industry, man. Because like I know, I know your your struggle you, there. You, you know? know, like I, and it's probably a good thing I wear a mask. You know, when people ask me that question, because I'm like doing this, like <laughs> kidding. I give them the look, and they only get this much of it, so they're not immediately yeah. offended by me. You know, looking at them like they're yeah, never mind. But um, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. Hard. And you know what? I would rather not sell an animal and lose out on a $500 sale for the shop because what's ultimately going to happen is that animal is going to suffer. Right. Yeah. And I have a hard but time. It's a tough position to be in too, because it's hard to know, at least when I was working at a shop, I mm-hmm. felt like it was hard to know who those, like obviously you can, you can get the sense that somebody's, probably going to torch the animal you know when something doesn't seem like it's going right mm-hmm. but then the other side of it is that you don't want to judge a book by its cover you exactly wanna, you can't exactly everybody them. has yeah everybody has the right to learn to be a good keeper and we all but, start somewhere yeah like and I who are before, we to say you know there were just definitely times where i'd hand the snake over the counter and be like good luck little buddy you know i yeah. don't know how this is going to go for you but that's yeah. All you can do is just educate as much as you can and, and yeah. try to be a resource for those folks and hope that they actually care enough to, to learn, you know? Yeah. But yeah. That's the, that's the struggle for sure. It's hard. I, don't I miss mean, that. <laughs> I think, I think it's harder when you have to do it digitally and you're not able to talk to somebody face to face. Right. Like when you're just selling snakes on morph market or something and your only conversation is like text messages or at best a phone call. And, and then the animal's just gone and you just hope that what you you passed on translated and was absorbed appropriately and that at right. the very least they'll still reach out to you for questions if they have issues later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's that fine line between like, you know, trying to do what's right and then also not telling somebody what to do, I guess. It's, it's yeah. tough. It is. It's tough for sure. You know? It is. Because some of those folks that are asking you know, silly questions or might not really be on, on the right path off the, off the get go, you know, might just need that, that little push yeah. in the right direction. And then maybe they're, you know, a yeah. fantastic keeper. You know, I'm sure yeah. the questions I asked were absolutely ridiculous when I was trying to get my first carpet Python, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and just, you know, I think back then it was even, there was less information. So mm-hmm. It was even harder to sort of, I think maybe that's the difference. Like, you know, my generation of keepers, you just figured it out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just, you sort of like, you know, used your common sense from, from books and, you know, trying to sort of, you know, what blew my mind was, you know, the whole idea of micro habitats, right? You have Mm -hmm. these habitats and, you know, you look on your phone and you say, okay, in Queensland right now, it's, uh, you know, it's 106 degrees and then it's going down to 70 degrees. But like, 
I don't know. Does that mean that carpet pythons need to be 106 degrees? No, right. Yeah. The guy who, who cooked that bearded dragon that I was just talking about when I was on the phone with him and we, he was telling me what was going on. He's like, well, I just figured, you know, they're reptiles. It's Australia. They like it hot. And I was like, dude, no, they're That's a- reptiles. It's a misconception. Just because yeah. an animal's from somewhere where it's hot, right. whether it be Texas, Africa, Australia, the top of a volcano in China—I don't know—it doesn't matter. They don't it like uh, it. Doesn't quite have the option to leave. <laughs> yeah, they don't like that it's you know on the virtue of dehydrating them and killing them if they stand on the wrong side of the shade line. They have found ways to adapt to that environment and survive and avoid those extremes or at least use them to their benefit in a safe way. You don't find Australian reptiles like kicking their feet up, cracking a beer when it's 150 degrees out in Alice Springs going, yes, this is what I've been waiting for all winter. No, they're hiding in a fucking rock or under a log somewhere going. God damn it, it's hot out. You know, yeah, right. You you live in Sacramento. Sometimes it's going to be 105 degrees. What did you do? You got air conditioning. Yeah, it's 110. You don't see shit outside. You make your microclimate too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, we when we went to Queensland, you know, um, the first time we we spent a lot of time in Cairns and in Tully and all that. You know, all the gelatin, all those areas, and it's very very. tropical right mm-hmm. just like you would think very humid you know mm-hmm. probably 90 percent humidity um you know in these gorges uh when the sun came up you know it was like seven o'clock in the morning and you know the rocks are like 120 degrees you know and it's, it's like the sun just came up so you can absolutely see those species coming out in the morning collecting the sun and then they're out and you don't yeah. see them until the sun goes down and yeah. like you might see lizards and stuff like that but even uh, you know, just a couple of thoughts from the trip, but when we found that, I can't remember exactly what species it was, but it was this big, uh, big monitor. And, um, basically, uh, we had sort of caught it where it was sort of sunning itself on the road, but I think it got sort of stressed and it ran to this tree, but you could see it was like, it was, we had to, we had to get away from it and let it be because it was overheating. You could see just by what it was doing and how it was acting. And you're like, well, wait a minute, this is a monitor and it's only, it's like a hundred degrees here right now. I don't understand why it's overheating or whatever. And, um, and like when you go into, um, you know, further towards the center of Australia, as we went to like Chilago and stuff, um, you would go to those caves and you're talking like a 30 degree difference in temperature inside those right. caves. Like, right. I guess maybe Lucas, the next video I'll give you will be, uh, will be that because I'm walking inside these caves, temp gunning this stuff and it's like 70 degrees. And I'm like, okay, I didn't even think about reptiles. I just said, I couldn't believe how did people survive? How did human <laughs> beings survive? in this environment like how do they live i i you know like yeah. where's the water yeah. it's so dry it's so hot it's you know and at nighttime it's cold like how did they adapt to this and you know you see the caves and you're like oh okay this is what they did <laughs> yeah aha <laughs> that, that's another reason why i don't like having such one-sided limiting terms as uh, it's either arboreal or semi-arboreal or it's terrestrial or it's subterranean because let's face it, most snakes are probably all of the above with yeah. the exception of like blood pythons and anacondas. But then again, we've all seen anacondas climbing up trees, have draped over rivers or retics up in trees and 
you know what? Like if carpets are going down and escaping into rock crevices, does that make them subterranean? No, the label still says semi-arboreal, but that's just because we're used to seeing them when we encounter them, which is typically when the, the peak of the heat of the day is gone. They're out hunting and they're out active. And guess what? They're hanging from a tree looking for rodents by a game trail. But guess what they did the other 75% of the day? So, you know, having just these limited um, labels, I think it just it limits our creativity and in, in how we can really think of these animals and what they need and what they do. Yeah. That's why I, f I firmly believe that the best way to educate yourself about the species you keep is to try to get to the environment and see it for yourself and feel it and experience it. The heat, the cold, the, you know, the, the weather, the, you know, you know, when is the sun coming up? When is the moon coming up? Like all those things you just, mm -hmm. it's like you, I mean, you can learn so much, um, yeah. in that, uh, in that time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, there's no, there's no limit to that. I mean, that video that came out not too long ago talking about how ball pythons are borderline arboreal. I was like, well, I really can't disagree with any of that, especially considering I've seen ball pythons several feet up in the air and trees of their own volition, you know? It's just yeah. I heard somebody talking about that too, where they were sort of pushing back on that a little bit. And they were saying that like, you know, like because they caught him in a tree, does that mean it's sort of like to your point, what you were just saying, Riley, just right. because they caught him in a tree, does that make them the arboreal right. or right. like if the snake is starving and it knows that it can go up and catch a bird or whatever it's going to catch yeah. in the tree, right. is it doing that because it's starving or is it doing that right. because it likes to be in trees? Yeah. You know? And it's just a, it's just labels, right? Like I can right. climb a yeah. tree, but would right. you call me arboreal? In that moment, it looks like it. I think that's the thing. We're, we're you two are arboreal to me to begin with because you're so <laughs> high up. You know? <laughs> my point, though, my point uh, isn't that that I'm saying calling them arboreal is right or wrong. I guess my point is who cares? Yeah, right? like about it, the it, label. Like <laughs> the label is just a human construct. It's just yeah. for our organization's sake. Because if we have a question, we need to have an answer for it. Instead of just yeah. saying, I don't know, or you can't just limit it in one way, we have to have some construct just to sort of simplify it and explain it in a reproducible manner to get people's foot in the door. And I think that's fine, but like, I I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah labels are just silly like that. And that, that ball python video, even the argument could have been argued as silly because all he was showing was people's little snapshots or one little clip of their snake perched or cruising or doing something you know we don't know what the animal does quantifiably throughout its day we just happen right. to see it in that moment and that argument was that you know we always think of ball pythons as living in termite mounds because the areas where they're finding them they've cleared out all the trees and all that's left for them to hide in are termite mounds but if you mm -hmm. go into other areas their their data showed that like 76 percent of them were found up in trees. And that's just because that area had trees and the other areas where they're collected don't for whatever reason. So, you know, it's perspective, it's a lens, it's all human construct. The bottom line is the animals don't give a damn what you call it. Yeah. As long as they can, as long as they can eat, shed, stay safe, hydrate and reproduce. Those are the goals. Those are the biological components they have going for them. And however they accomplish that is however they accomplish that. Yeah. Right. I agree. <laughs> like brown tree snakes in Indo versus brown tree snakes or night tigers in Australia, the same thing. 
but you know, they've adapted differently because they're separated now and they've accomplished their biological programmed goals in life in different ways and different climates yet they're the same thing. So, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, Cause we get so caught up in these things and, you know, we die on our, on our Hill and, you know, yeah. Uh, I it's think all it, so complex and nuanced, but also so simple all at yeah, the same time. It is. I think the simplest answer is to say, just, you know, do what's best for your animals and don't limit yourself. Yeah. 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 If you, if you yeah. just, that's your goal. If your goal is just doing right by your animals and just trying to make it work, however you get there is, is up to you. You know, like the, the thing I love about, you know, like events like carpet fest more than anything is like the whole idea that uh, like now I can actually talk to you and I don't care how long you've been keeping or anything like that. But like, if you have, uh, an idea or an observation that's going to teach me something, I'm all in, you know what I mean? Like, if we can have a conversation about, well, here's my experiences, here's your experiences, you know, like, Oh wow, that's pretty fascinating. And, um, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's like the priceless thing, you know? And yeah. like, that's sort of like how you learn all your, at least that's how I learn, you know, it's just from talking to people and like the more and more you talk to people and sort of open your mind and not be so closed minded that your way is the best way. And like, just because you produced, you know, 150 clutches last year that somehow you're the Zen master of whatever species it is. And, you know, if you only keep one in a tank, somehow you are not And like, I, I don't know, man, like yeah. you might be able to learn. I remember in the early days of uh, ball pythons, like they used to say that like people with smaller collections were able to learn more about their snakes and probably more successful breeding wise, like from a percentage wise, um, they might not have, say, the the volume of numbers, but like they'll get if they tried ten clutches, they'll probably able to get all ten to go. Whereas if you're like you know spread yourself so thin with all these animals, you're not going to be able to develop the time or know those animals individually, um, like you know that person that has ten would, right. you know. So yeah. I mean, they've always sort of been saying it, but this underlying thing about like you know, you got to breed to be somebody, you got to breed to be somebody is, 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 was always sort of like, uh, you know, that, yeah. that background voice going, if you don't breed or create the coolest snake or the newest morph or whatever, you know, yeah. it's as if people forgot there's still more to discover out there. Just herping. You can, you can make a name for yourself finding cool Hell discoveries. Yeah. We're just yeah, that's true. Pioneering so many things too, not yeah. just herpticulture. Yeah, it really is. There's oh, just yeah. there's so much more out there. And and I and I love I love the fact that in, in my little sector of the industry now where I'm at, I see the joy of the innocence of people who just keep for the sake of keeping. Whether it's kids or a dude who works construction, he just likes his hog nose at home. That's it. Like that's yeah. the coolest. It's it's so refreshing because they come in and they don't see things the same way I do. They don't think of things the same way I do. They're thinking about the substrates or the fake plants or you know the part of the house or all these things for that one animal. And they're so tuned into that one animal that like the slightest little thing they pick up on and they just love it. And I think that's the most refreshing thing because yeah, sometimes we don't do that. Can I? Uh, and, oh, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. 
Can I take it to my environmental studies depressing place like I tend to do? Yeah, yeah man. Real quick. <laughs> I think that as we watch shit hit the fan, that there's going to be more of a pull, and maybe there already is, for people to have that piece of nature in a box in their house. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that as things slowly uh, disappear, disappear here, if you will, yeah. that more and more people are going to find the appeal in that. And uh, for the sake of herpeticulture, that might be a, a positive development. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, just an observation. I don't know. Just a thought. I yeah, I find that um, the older I get, the more I, I try to, or I, I have a desire to want to be in touch with nature. And I think that, you know, today's society we've we're i don't know we're so like pulled away from that right and like i've been reading these books about native american folklore and culture and you know how they you know use the environment and mm-hmm. and 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 we're able to you know understand what certain things meant just by they didn't have the sophisticated uh you know equipment or you know uh stuff to but they but they were so in tune with the environment it's sort of similar to what i'm saying about the person that just has the one snake is like because they're really dialed into that one animal or say five animals as opposed to 150 animals that they're able to really pick up on these subtle cues that um that sort of gets lost on us in today's shuffle of today's Mm. world you know and i think that for me I don't know. Like I, I love technology. I love the fact that we're having this conversation right now because of technology and all that. But like, you know, when you're out in the, in the wild, for me, there's something like, there's no cell service. There's something quiet about it. There's something peaceful. There's something like in my inner soul that says, you know, this is the way you're supposed to be, if you will, you know, um, there's definitely a battery there that, that you can charge that I think a lot of people haven't figured out how to connect with. Yes, um, with yeah. all yeah. the noise of of what yes. our lives lives have become. Hundred percent, man. Yeah, you the know? natural the natural world is so so important to us, even if we don't realize. Just on a subconscious level, I think. Yeah, I think just we get so caught up in our own human constructions of whatever it is in the world that we forget to like just stop and breathe. Yeah, my wife like doesn't understand. You know, like when Rob came up and we went to the Pine Barrens and Delaware, like every day we're going on a trip somewhere. We're all across Pennsylvania. We're going to New York, Timber Rattlesnake Dens, all this stuff. And it's go, 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 go. <laughs> and she's like, you're on vacation. Would you relax? And I'm like, but you don't understand. This is relaxing. <laughs> you know, like I know you don't get it. But like when I'm there and we were climbing up the mountain in New York to this rattlesnake den, I'm I'm nearly dying as I'm climbing <laughs> up this hill. But like when you get to the top, you're like, you just sit there and you just, you take it in for a second, you know, and you're just yes. like, oh, wow. It's just, yeah. it, I don't know, man. It's hard to beat. It's hard to yeah. beat. I think it's, I think it's something that everybody should do at least once a year. I know it's hard to do with COVID and work and family and all these things, but just mm-hmm. if you made it a point to at least go camping for a weekend or something like that, once a year, turn <sighs> the cell phone off, go out somewhere where there is no cell service. Like we went to, uh, we went to Yosemite, a couple of years ago with a housemate of mine whose whose brother lives up there. This was when I was still in Santa Barbara. And uh, there was plenty of cell signal up there, but I just turned my phone on airplane mode. And I was like, sorry, I'm tuning out for the, the next three days. And uh, I didn't charge it. I didn't carry it with me. It didn't have it in my pocket. I left it in my car, off in the glove box. 
we went driving around, we went hiking, like climbed up onto some rocks where like, if you step too far, you're falling a thousand feet to your death sort of thing. And just like sitting yeah. there soaking up trees, waking up to a waterfall and a running river and having a bobcat run right through camp while I'm making coffee and all this stuff. And it was like, I remember how good I felt for the following like couple weeks afterwards, mm. just like not a, nothing bothered me. I had no stress. I was good for mm. quite some time. It just felt really refreshing. And then yeah, the real world came crushing back in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It reframes everything, right? <laughs> Every, all, yeah. all of our little, uh, daily struggles become pretty trivial to an extent my my stress has been met it's like i'm managing it long enough to get to the next trip (laughs) (laughs) i have to space them out enough so where it's like you know and you come back and it like totally changes your perspective on life and everything you know i look at uh like when people are coming and complaining because you know I don't know. Uh, their turkey was too dry at Thanksgiving. Somehow that's the, turkey, the turkey's fault. You know, it's not the fact that you overcooked it. You yeah. know, it's it's yeah. like I don't make them out back. It's not like we have. Uh, you know, you know. I just I never understand that. Like people right come in and they're complaining about the apple. They're like, "This apple is bad." And like, well, I. It's not like I made it. I mean, you on know, a freaking tree, <laughs> fell down. Some dudes yeah. picked it up, came on a truck. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> even that. Even our idea, see, even that, even that, like it, 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 it comes into my day-to-day work, right? It's like, I go around, if you go through the produce department and I'm looking at stuff, if the apples aren't perfect, you know, it's like, oh, they're trash, get mm. it rid of them. And it's like, yeah. no, there's nothing wrong with that Consumer other apple. Standards that for produce is absurd. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No? And you watch people will walk by and actually pick up something and you're like, oh, that's these they couldn't be fresher, you know, and they're just like, oh, I don't like the way it it down. So like, I I don't know, man, it's 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 so weird. How dare you judge your fruit from Chile that's only here because (laughs) air transport. (laughs) You shouldn't have stone fruit in summer or winter. (laughs) Shame on you. Yeah, it's grateful. I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. And like, uh, just like, I don't, I don't know, man, it's yeah. weird things that, uh, so like I'm when, when people are yelling at me about that kind of shit, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> really, man, like this is, this is, this is what upsets you so much in life that like you, you don't, you're just going to bitch and complain about the fact that your fruit has another knob off the side of it or something. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Your lemon isn't perfectly yellow, you know, yeah. or it, the, the the knob on the top is a little twisted or, you know, like your carrot has another offshoot or something. It's like, come on, man. I One grape in this bag of grapes was <laughs> smushed. Yes. How dare you? What are you trying to pull? We're all carrots is upon us. Oh, man. Um, yeah. But- yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't know how we got on the topic of fruit. I don't know either, <laughs> but I like it. We just we, we admire the natural things in this world, including When I fruit, worked at the fish market, it was inside of a produce market, and people would come to me with their fruit complaints. I'm like, I'd cut the fish. Like, what do you want? <laughs> well, I, I was impressed by that. You were actually a fish cutter, huh? That's how I started, yeah. too. Oh, no yeah. way, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. What a shitty job, man. It, I used to it have is. It for eight hours. Oh, man. I did it for oh. four years. And the worst was actually always Christmas because we had the, the Dungeness crab over here. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would crack crab for 14 hours straight. Oh. And my hands would be bleeding. And <laughs> oh. 
I was allergic to the iodine too. So like bleeding from chemical burns. (laughs) Yeah. I would get this rash up my arm from reaching in to grab lobsters at a lobster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, I never. Crazy. I know. Thing we have in there you <laughs> go. I didn't have as many bad grocery store experiences as you, although that was my first job. I I was just a 16 year old kid. They threw a they threw a sweater and some gloves at and said, "Go spend the next eight hours in the back of the milk box every weekend." <laughs> oh, so, that sucks too, man. I liked when they threw me in the walk-in because then I didn't have to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. uh, see, that's the thing. Like they, I finally figured out a system, but I've got like milk cartons in the ceiling, so I'm like climbing over shit like a monkey all day in this freezer, wearing a beanie, a sweater, and gloves, trying not to freeze to death, and then stocking things. And then people would come in and think it's hilarious and like reach through and grab my hand on the shelf and go ah, and then just like look at me like uh, they expect some reaction. I'm like, I'm cold and. Scare the shit out of me. Stop it. Yeah. Just a kid. I'll, I get out of here. I'll tell you what, man. The best cure for a hangover is to go hang in a in a freezer box, man. Oh, That'll I, that cures the hangover <laughs> like boop. Hangover is touching slimy fish in the cold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad uh that's a bad day when you have to come in after a long night of drinking and have to cut fish for eight hours. It's that's, well. that's a tough yeah. pill to swallow. Yeah. at 6 a.m just wanting to yeah mm-hmm. oh look at that snakes I'll, I'll just hold one yeah. <laughs> there you go and that's a nice snake is that Smile. the one that just shed yes yep she yeah, shed out how old is she mm, probably coming up on a year oh damn okay yeah they grow fast they do grow fast. Now, I, I even fed her a rat. You know, this is this is mice and quail growth. <laughs> wow. So, do you have a rhyme or reason on how you mix it up, or do you just go whatever you yeah. grab is what you feed them? For the for the adult male, which is with Riley at the shop in Sacramento, he gets like a small or medium quail or two little mice. Because I just wanted to maintain him, right? Like he was about the size I want him to be when I acquired him. Right. Uh-huh. But for her, I'm kind of figuring it out more as I go because, you know, the female, I'll want to be a bit bigger. Um, so no, no real rhyme or reason to it okay. yet. I think I'll just keep slow growing her up to size and then I'll probably do more of the same thing where it's mostly quail. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to have to consider my my relationship with blackheads and rats because it was very easy for me to say with the male that I just wasn't going to do it because he was already big, yeah. but I don't know if I want to completely grow this girl up on mice and quail. Maybe I do want to toss a rat every now and then I'm still, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. You know, Rob swears by the fact that we overlook mice as a, as a staple and like automatically go to rats and you know, like he, I think he feeds the majority of his collection mice because he breeds his own mice. And like, I got to tell you, man, when I got that Darwin and Tully from him, I'm like, this thing only ate mice. <laughs> like, wow. Like, you know, like solid, you know? Yeah. And, and the fat content in a mouse, is it, is it true from what you guys have heard that it's a little bit less of a butterball than a rat little leaner? I think yeah. so. Yeah. That's the logic that I've been going off of anyway, but I don't know if that's an urban legend. <laughs> so 
I'm always curious with like, so with the Aspidites, do, well, both of you guys have them, but like with the blackheads in particular, do you feed them more like a colubrid or are you doing it more seasonal or like what's the approach? So up until this year, I did small meals more often. Um, okay. But, what does like what is the more often every week oh, uh, every week or every two. 10 days okay yeah it depends if if i did a quail i'd i'd usually wait two weeks because the quails were a little bigger if i did like uh-huh. the ice i would maybe do a, a, a weekly um but i'm trying to do more of a cycle feed with them now too just since uh-huh. that's what i'm doing with everything uh so at the moment it's just it's fairly sparse because i'm also giving them a little bit of a drop so uh Okay. Yeah. yeah, we we cycle the ones at the shop. Um, you know, feed heavy certain times of the year, feed sparingly other times of the year. But when we do feed, it's like big meals for them. That's I think. Cool. I don't know what you guys think, but I guess maybe this. I don't know. We're almost at two hours. If you want to cut it off soon, but maybe this could be our last topic of choice, sure. if you will. But you know, everybody focuses on naturalistic enclosures and UV and the special heat and how you're going to take care of it. But what I don't hear people talk enough about is diet and how fat we (laughs) keep our reptiles, man. And to me, that's probably the most detrimental thing to them and their health long-term in the hobby. And everybody seems to think like, Oh, well, you know, they feed it once a week. No big deal. You know, like, yeah. It's uh it's, it's killer. Yeah. Yeah, man. It really I think, is. I think we'll all be looking back in 10, 20 years and we'll have had that much time to pass with the animals that we have currently. And I think we'll see a difference. I think I think, you know, very few ball python breeders have animals in double digits of age. I think very few people get their their big fat butterball breeders over 10, 15. And I think, you know. I think they all should be getting beyond 20 years. I've seen plenty of ball pythons get it over 40 um, and, and still, you know, doing really well. And I think, you know, in 10, 15 years time, we'll be able to look back because I think we're starting to see a shift in that thought process now. Right. And I think for instance, you know, like the way we don't feed our babies at all this time of year. Right. And so they grow slower. So it takes them a little bit longer to reach maturity in that adulthood. I think when you right. spread things out, you'll see a lot of that. And I don't know. I think it, I think about diamond python syndrome and how that affected the thought process and industry and everything of, around diamonds. And now that we've got that figured out, you're spreading out the food, you're letting them cool down. I always equate like, the the body systems of reptiles and the digestion to that of a car. Like if you're constantly feeding it and running it, constantly feeding it and running it, you yeah. burn the edge out. You burn that stuff out way faster than if you gave it a break, and let it rest, and took care right. of it, and, and you know did a few other things. So I, that's where you know paying attention to what you're feeding it and what your food is eating. Like you know lab grade rats just. Yeah, lab-grade rats are just eating Missouri or whatever big fat chow that gets them up to size, you know, faster. Yeah. But, you know, I bet if you looked at the um, the muscle content of a wild animal that's eating, you know, wild rodents and squirrels and birds that are eating natural foods versus, you know, lab-grown diets for a species that's exactly the same, you'd see an absolute difference. 
Absolutely. So, yeah. And couldn't and agree more. Somebody posted something earlier. I wish I remembered it. He, he had some species of snake, uh, some Aussie lapid or something like that. That yes, Matt Somerville. Yes. Yeah. How, only he eats. fed it like one mouse a year or something, yeah, and it, it was it six, Yeah, he fed it six times, six hopper mice in an entire yeah. year, yes. and it and it finally passed away out of nowhere. And he dissected it, and the thing was obese yeah. from six hopper mice. Damn. Yes. This yeah. is an active species. Yeah. So, my question, yeah, my question to that would be: is like, okay, is it is that and then the exercise? Is it the diet? Is it the is it a mix of both? Um, you know, I mean, it's hard to, you know, on one side of it, you have the whole idea that you know pythons, and I'm just talking about pythons in particular. Um, are ambush predators, right? Mm -hmm. So they're sitting and waiting. Yes, they do move, they do travel, they do do things like that. But for the most part, they're waiting for that meal to come along. So it's not like they're, you know, it's not like an indigo snake where it's actively foraging, um, right. if you will, right? The metabolism is so probably a lot different between those, correct. those two. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So so does that matter? Does that does that make a difference that, um, you know, uh, that that snake is sitting there waiting and you're feeding it, you know, X amount of, uh, you know, meals a year and, and it becomes obese, or is it just the fact that it's the prey item itself? You know, I remember, I don't know where I ever happened to this, but there was a hog nose breeder that was on, um, reptile radio back in the day. And he had this interesting idea that like, for the most part, um, the mice that he was getting were all males, so were they loaded with testosterone, which then, you know, affected the, uh, the animal and it's by, you know, taking in that extra testosterone or did it somehow, you know, make for fatter snakes? Because he noticed that the growth rate on those animals were just like, you know, See, and he's there's like, something shit. else that I would have never thought of. That is so true. They're all right? boys. <laughs> right. So is that, effect <laughs> right. is that affecting, is that affecting them? Um, yeah, I don't know, man. That's just all interesting. That's you know, crazy. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's variation within every species, but you know what? The whole time while you guys were sort of brainstorming that stuff, I'm thinking, okay, our biggest, the biggest species of snake we know of are either equatorial or subtropical, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking African rocks, berms, retics, some of the king horn eye, anacondas. So, like, there's probably a mid band around the globe where we find those. And those animals don't necessarily experience a winter. They might experience seasonal rainfall. So they probably, you know, the bigger animals have to eat more to sustain their body mass. So, you know, maybe there's some correlation to, you know, like, okay, certain species are probably built to eat year round because food is available year round and then certain species, not so much. And then there's probably exceptions to those rules within areas. I always think about, you know, some interviews I've listened to over the years of Vin Russo talking about some of those island boas that only have, you know, eight to 12 weeks a year where migratory birds are even passing through their range and that's all they get to eat and that's it. As well as how, you know, there's like six weeks or whatever it is or 10 weeks with his ball pythons out of the year where he feeds them as much as they will eat and then the rest of the year is fasting and breeding. And I, I always think about some of that and we you know, as much as we try not to anthropomorphize our animals, the fact that we think these animals might all need a regular scheduled year-round amount of feeding might be incorrect just in its foundations. And so 
mm-hmm. that's where the seasonality I think agrees a little bit more with my thoughts on it, you know, feeding at different times of year and not other times of the year. And yeah. then it plays yeah. into why some animals might be obese and, you know, why maybe Eric's approach to feeding them leaner and keeping them smaller and, and what that, you know, everything you're doing is maybe more natural and, and lends to, you know, closer to wild type diet and, and then therefore body mass and build. Yeah. And I feel like you have to think of it species specific too, right? Because like something that exists where there is a a serious winter, you know, they're not going to be eaten very much during that winter. Right. Right. Whereas like maybe like an Aru green tree or something like that, the the conditions are fairly, fairly the same throughout the year. Right. So maybe it's more of a smart thing to feed them like, once a month or so throughout the year rather than like a cycle feed. Cause they're, cause their conditions are fairly stable, but I don't know. Yeah. Just, yeah. I wonder too, if like, you know, if you want to take the whole cycle feeding and another step, and I know that you're not going to be able to recreate nature in a box, but like the ideas that we're trying to come up with as far as keepers is, is trying to replicate that as best we can for the overall health and the longevity of the species that we keep. Maybe cycle feeding, even cycle feeding yearly, like meaning that not every year is there going to be a bountiful uh, prey abundance, you know? So like, um, is that why you'll see in captivity where we're breeding a snake back to back three years in a row? Whereas if that snake was in the wild, it's probably breeding once in those three years. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And because of the availability of prey species or, you know, it may say, no, I'm not going to breed this year because, you know, again, it, it all sort of goes back to that, like that idea that we have to breed all the time and like you can't take a year off. And if somehow I'm not breeding, I'm not legitimate that year. Um, you know, I wish that people would not necessarily make that the end all be all of uh, who you are in the hobby, if you will, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of all the times I've heard of, of you know, other people's in zoos, other people in zoos talking about how their anacondas took like an entire year off feeding. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that several yeah. times. The little anacondas just not eating for a whole calendar year, then the next year they're good. And you even see it with like, um, so I had this the this this uh, lady that worked with my wife, and she was key, she had bought a ball python, and she bought it from a pet shop, and it wasn't eating, and I tried to explain to her. That like probably out of all the python species, ball pythons are the best at uh, just saying, no, I've had enough and I'm not going to eat anymore. Right. Yeah. But somehow we have to we have this idea that if it's not eating, it's not healthy. And like, you know, like really trying to, ex- you know, I guess there really has to be some serious studies on eating. Maybe there are out there and I just don't know where they are, but like I'm eating. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like eating in the wild as opposed to experiments in captivity. Oh, there you go, Lucas. You got another uh, project for you. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we had a ball python at at the Sacramento Zoo. He's still there. I'm not there, but he is. And uh, 40 years old and previous keeper was feeding it only mice, feeding it several a week. And it got it got big and it's a male and it's the size of, you know, a big female, a little over 2000 grams. But it would notoriously go off feed for months at a time. And, uh, you know, us in the hobby, we hear about that all the time. It's just like, yeah, that's ball python, no, no big deal. But the veterinary staff, you know, from a, from a textbook standpoint, it like 
it just didn't it didn't make them comfortable and so you know they wanted to force feed it and do tests and do all yeah, these yeah. things and like right i sort of had to like find a middle ground where i was like well let's just back off how much we're offering and when so i took it down from like four mice a week to like one mouse a month you know mm-hmm. and eventually it started eating again but during this entire year where it was very irregular it maybe lost 200 grams of weight and then eventually it got back on track and was eating every two, three weeks. And it's just, it's just one of those things where like, I don't think everybody thinks of it, you know, maybe appropriately for the species, but these things have insanely slow digestive systems. Their body has to go through so much physiological change just to put food in their stomach. Yeah, and that blood chemistry completely changes. Unbelievable. Organs physically exactly. shrink and regrow during that time. Yeah. That's a serious that's... ordeal for an animal. Yep. So, um, you know, that's why I'm a big proponent of feeding only one food, ima- food item at a time uh, for the most part, you know, unless we're talking about colubrids and things that right. just wolf down little food items. Different beasts there. For sure. Yeah, a different yeah. thing, but yeah, it's just you, you know, snakes are probably the most overfed group of of pet reptiles that we have in the hop. I love it when I tell people that that aren't super in this world that I probably won't feed the big ones, you know, because they don't know what what bread lie is, right? So I right. just say the big one from like October to March. They're like, yeah. huh? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah I might oh, only yeah. eat four times a year. They're like, oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I get that reaction all the time at the shop. They're like, "Oh, he's eating a he's eating a pup a week now. He's getting really big." I'm like, "Wow, you spoil your snakes." So like, "How so?" I was like, "Oh, mine aren't eating until February." She's like, "What?" Like, yeah. yeah, it's just deal. so uh, so foreign to to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, I have to fact check myself. That blackhead's closer to two years old. Okay, my brain gonna... took a while on that one, but yeah, say, no, they that's, shouldn't be that big at one year old. <laughs> stop what you're doing. Put the rats down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Since we're on this subject, this I really had to correct myself. Feet. Otherwise I look like a massive hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. Power feeder, yeah, I don't know. I think about those statements like, you know, uh, I hate to always pick on the ball Python people, but they're it's just so the ones easy. that are, well, they're the most out there. Right. Yeah, you know, so like, they talk about the thousand gram wall that they have to get over. And it's like, well, I love cheesesteaks, man. But like, there's going to come a point where I'm not going to eat anymore because I just can't. You know? and I'm just like, okay, you know, I've had yes. enough cheesesteaks. The 300 uh, pound wall of human. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't eat anymore. You know, yeah. yes, they're delicious. And, uh, you know, I would love to, but, you know, I don't yeah. know. I think, so. I think certain species are built for bust and boom. And I think, Right. Certain times of the year, it probably is normal for some species to to try and grab a meal as often right. as possible. Like, you know, those species that live on islands where migratory birds only come for eight to 12 weeks of the year. Who, who's to stop them? Like, nope, sir, you've had one <laughs> yeah. for the week. Right. Share with oh, the rest yeah. of the guys on the island. Right. Your 20 brothers and sisters over there need them <laughs> too. Um, that doesn't happen. Dare so, you. Yeah, so I think... I think, you know, maybe at certain, obviously it comes down to species and we just don't know, but like, in a, imagine a perfect world where you could transplant yourself on one of those islands with all the amenities and some little invisible bubble and just observe a group of snakes on this island and watch, yeah. you know, imagine how different keeping would be if it just became known that, okay, species X only eats when it's raining at night, these months of the year, and then 
four months of the year it stops and then shoot who knows maybe three months later it only eats a certain prey item different times of the year i mean dave kaufman went to new caledonia and found out that you know crested geckos and lichianus geckos and things certain times of the year shift food preferences like there's crickets and bugs and things available half the year and then there's overripe sure. and down nectars and fruits everywhere the yeah. other half of the year right, so you, right. you know we haven't even gotten into like prey availability and variation seasonally yeah. And so. look, nature's hard. Sometimes the prey wins. If the predator always wins, there would be no more prey, you know? Yeah. Like, so this snake might be trying to eat all year, but it might only right. succeed a handful of times. And that um, goes back to Eric's point, you know, earlier that not all of these animals are going to breed every year. Some years are not good years, you know, right. uh, bust and boom with rain and, and feast and famine, you know, that I think it was, everything. I think it was in, in the Justin Julander Green Tree book that they said, even though they are, perched in in that s coil position every day and ready to eat you know or whatever they might only catch like seven meals mm -hmm. a year or something like that right mm -hmm. um that doesn't mean they're not trying it's just yeah. that's that's the reality of existing in nature it's not a buffet all the time yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, definitely. yeah yeah everybody's idea of that is uh is very skewed if you will you know mm -hmm. um yeah well, it's, it comes from a good place. We want to spoil our animals. We want to make sure they're well cared for. We want to make sure they're surviving and eating. And, you know, to a human construct, denying them food seems cruel because we're people and that's just, you know, how our brains work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if a, a snake is getting like the satisfaction of eating a mouse like I would from eating a cheesesteak. But, you know, I don't yeah. know if like all the, you know. <laughs> all the things are firing in the brain and everything, or maybe they are, maybe they're like, Oh my God, you know, this mouse is delicious. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be interesting. Like we can obviously say that there are certain prey preferences for species, but yeah, maybe there's like other motivations as to why they like certain things at certain times of the year. And that's the last thing I'll end on is like that whole idea that like, you know, we are trying to make everything eat this mouse. Like, come on, man. Like, yeah. if you want to keep a species that doesn't eat mice, then then get the prey. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Stock I, up on frog legs. Yeah. They're available. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you need hognose, get some tadpoles. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I learned that from Rob. He's just like, you know, he's like, getting the knolls and feeding these, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he's challenged with those boas that he's got that in the mm -hmm. wild, are, you know, they'll yeah. only eat them if they're sleeping on a, on a, on a, on a uh, piece of grass or whatever. And like, <laughs> and, eat them. and if they're not perfectly still, they won't, you know, but they have yeah. to be alive, but they can't be moving. And it's just if you right. keep wow. pounding the square peg into the round hole. Eventually yeah. you'll break through, but you broke the hole. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you don't get the snake to eat, it's going to be dead. So if you yeah. have a choice yeah. to make, it's like, okay, maybe, you know, it gets worms or whatever, whatever, blah, 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 whatever the case would be that everybody's so afraid of. And that's yeah. another reason why I want to get a couple lizards and geckos, you know, as you move into like keeping anteresia and if you ever want to breed them and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, yeah. Or that's even good. geckos. Yeah. <laughs> like what are you doing <laughs> hey it happens man like yeah. it is what it is um yeah that's that's exactly why i think uh species like dragon snakes will never ever be established in the hobby 
I don't care who you are. Until somebody finds a super easy, sustainable, cheap, affordable, inconvenient, not messy, work-intensive way to get tadpoles growing like crazy, dragon snakes, leave them out in the wild. Don't don't try and bring them in and keep trying your methods to breed them because even if you do figure out how to breed them, the market will never, ever support dragon snakes because you also have to have an entire industry of cultivating tadpoles for that species. We don't even have people in, interested in captive breeding savanna monitors, and it can be done with your eyes closed. And they don't need any special food preferences or anything. So, you know, I mean, kudos to people trying to figure out those species, but, you know, figure them out and then just leave them in nature. Some of them just don't do not do well in, in human care. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's some species that are no good and, you, you know, um, but and then there's other species that are way better. You know, you you see, uh, there's a couple YouTube channels that kind of do that, where they're like, okay, well, you know, let's look at this species. What are the pros and the cons, and sort of yeah. like, oh yeah, look. Yeah, um, Clint, I actually just watched that last night. The yeah, he gave it all. <laughs> So yeah, hard it was great. It. He was honest. He said, if you buy the snake, also buy a jar and alcohol so you can preserve it when it dies. <laughs> yeah, it was the best. It was, it was awesome. A good it video. Was like hearing Owen come out of Clint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like Owen, he's not afraid to, uh, you know, I know we, we busted stones about the boas and stuff and everything, but like he's not afraid to like look at what he did with the fish. He's just like, yeah. oh, all right, I'm going to try fish. If he would have did that on like the MP days and he would be feeding a carpet python fish, they would be like, how dare you? You leave. We're taking away your Aurelia card and you must go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, oh, man. The world we live in. Reptiles. Yeah. Man, my Good hair stuff. is really gray in the sunlight, man. Uh, it looks glorious, oh, man. You know? Like, holy Good. shit. Hey, what, they, what do they call it? Silver Fox? Silver Fox. Woo. <laughs> got it. At least you got it. Enjoy it. Yeah, that's true. I yeah, keep wearing hats, but it. it's it's in there. It's in there. Yeah, mine Just, went downward. Mine's losing the fight towards gravity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, it's uh, yeah, on the discussion of food and feeding our animals and things. I'm going to go feed this animal. Indeed. This animal. Hungry, hungry, hungry. Well, our metabolism yeah. is very different from the pythons, and I yeah, require yeah. a sandwich. <laughs> it's, it's dinner time here for me, so yeah. nice. <laughs> well, I'm gonna so. go. I'm gonna go have some snacks. <laughs> good stuff. This was uh, this was a lot of fun, guys. Yeah, man. Yeah. Always a good time. Till next time. All right, all right gentlemen. Man. See you later. Everybody's in the chat. Thanks for joining in. We'll catch you all next week. Hopefully, again, we just do this off the cusp, so don't count on anything. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah. yeah.